probably known as slaves back then in the South, but, I mean, to this day they have fought everything that, that stands for freedom and liberty. Um, I believe they are at heart don't don't love this country. And I think they think that the communist or socialist model is the preferred model and the only way to go. And I believe that's because that's where they, they accumulate absolute power. When there's no middle class, it's just the upper and lower class. The elites rule. Can't have a middle class in a socialist and communist country. But anyway... We're still waiting for Annie to join us, and until she's able to, I will be co-hosting and speaking on the topics of the day. Um, it's looks like she may have dropped out again. I'm not even sure if anybody can hear me. And she's asking me, that is Annie if I can hear her, and I cannot. So maybe she may just need to call back in, log back in, or whatever. But um, if anybody else out there in the chat room can hear me, let me know by just, you know, putting something in the chat room saying that you can hear me. Um, Annie will be on as soon as she can make the connection. But, okay, we got somebody that can hear CS. But moving on, I am still in a daze over what happened in November. You know, things like that you just don't get over easily. I mean, the man had it. Trump had it. We did not fail. And when I say we, I'm talking about the supporters of Trump. We did not fail. We did our part. You know, we showed up for the rallies in big numbers. Um, we had parades. I can hear you now, Annie. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, unbelievable. I mean, uh, Curtis, you have no idea the type of morning that I have had. It, it, everything was set up out before the show. And then last minute, I sat down to go dial in, and everything decided it was going to update just as soon as I sat in the chair, and it locked me out. Unbelievable. I swear there are trolls that know they're coming after the show. <laughs> they're coming after me, and they've got me in their gun sights, and they're locked and loaded. Matter of fact, I can't even get the video up to go up onto Facebook Live or YouTube or anything else. I'm having a hard time with that. I am telling you, they are gunning for me. And I have no doubt that they are. I mean, they know most updates are done at night not during the working day, but they can plan these things for harassment purposes and just to uh, disrupt, you know, things, the flow of things. So I know because, like I said, I've been blocked out of um, my um, Outlook. So that's why I went and got me a private email um, server that I paid for, but I have some comfort knowing, you know, that I can not be, you know, worried about being censored or, my information given to third parties and things like that. Everything that the Google and all the people do. I don't have to worry about that no more. So you're back with us and I guess we could do the dedication. Oh, all right. Are you set up for that? 
uh, just bear with me for a second because even the video thing keeps on turning around saying it wants to update. For crying out loud, I can't even get the video up. I cannot get my camera up because it wants to keep on updating. But yeah, um, oh geez. <laughs> All right, I gotta I gotta tell you guys that um, as of yesterday afternoon, I had only one guest booked, and that was uh, Gregory Wrightstone. And then the, the world was just crashing down on me this week. My husband took another bad fall. He was scheduled oh, to have man. surgery February 28th, but because of the fall he just had, uh, they upped it to the 12th. Uh, in the interim, last night, I get home from physical therapy, and he's running a fever. He's got like 101.8. And, you know, everyone's worried about COVID and everything, but we basically um, self-quarantined. So I'm, I'm thinking that it's not. I'm thinking that maybe um, the uh, the uh, broken leg, he's, he's actually walking around on a broken leg, that maybe now he's got infected. So the physical therapist was here for him, and she's walking out the doors. I'm walking in. I'm calling the doctor. We're calling 911. Almost rushed him to the hospital. And this has been, the last several days, has been like a whirlwind. I got five hours sleep last night. I'm just. <laughs> wow. That's something, man. It's been quite. It's been quite a week for me, too. Um, my mother, she's back in the hospital. They should release her um, tomorrow sometime. Um, she had some swelling, some inflammation, and um, they had to take her in, and they kept her for a couple of days. But. She's at that point where um, I think, you know, um, probably, uh, I don't like to say this, but a couple of weeks to transition because she's that, that far gone. But she's hanging in there, being a good trooper and everything. But I get feet, you know, feet um, back, um, updates rather, every other day just about from up in Philadelphia. So, you know, that's the feedback that I have from my experience over the, the past week, back and forth, you know, trying to figure out what's going on up there. And then, of course, I'm working on three novels simultaneously. So that's been keeping me busy. And then I'm helping to organize some events coming up here in April and June that um, that's going to have a couple of other people joining me for a panel in Volusia County. And um, we're going to reach out to black Republicans, basically, um, all those who vote Republicans, but they, they don't get involved. That's who we're reaching out to um, in Volusia County um, in um, April. And then we're going to do something similar here in um, Putnam County. And some of my, my panelists that I, I picked to, um, to um, showcase with me will be like K. Carl Smith, um, State Representative, former State Representative um, Mike Hill from Florida, um, the Michaels, Bobby and Kyan, who lost a son to an illegal alien. And, and to think that Biden wants to open the borders again, tear down the wall, it's crazy. And then I also have um, Webster um, Barnaby, who just um, won state, state office in Florida. So I got a good crew with me, and um, we're going to try to do this all over the states and 
um, get that message out so when midterm comes around, we can regain seats in both the House and the Senate. And um, maybe we can get some people in there that's, that, that, that has some backbone. And if they don't, oh. maybe they can grow a pair. <laughs> and I'm not talking well, back. <laughs> well, um, let's go forward with the dedication, Curtis, because uh, now I've got everything. It looks like everything's up and running. We are up live on Facebook Live as well as LinkedIn and wherever else the, the, the show goes. <laughs> so looks like we finally got ourselves up and running. All, All right. right. I want to thank that is listening in here on Blog Talk Radio, um, Facebook, SHR Media, everywhere else. Thank you for hanging out with us. Uh, it's been a disaster today, but we'll work through it. And today's dedication is going to go out to Master Corporal Brian Roy Levin of the Hillsborough uh, County uh, Sheriff's Department out of Florida. His end of watch was January 11th of 2021 this year and this is from cnn.com and it reads master corporal brian levin 54 was in a marked vehicle when a suspect who had been tased unsuccessfully by deputies intentionally rammed his car according to a press release from the hcso honor him as the hero and for the service he left behind as a teacher, as a mentor, and again, someone who unselfishly served this community, Kronheister said. According to the HSCO, deputies had responded to two calls about a suspect who was acting erratically at the Paddock Club apartment in Braden, Florida, on that Monday afternoon. Braden is just east of Tampa. Quote, it is with heavy hearts we announce the passing of HCSO Master Corporal Brian Levin, killed in the line of duty on Monday, January 11, 2021. While assisting his fellow deputies on a call for service, an individual fleeing from deputies struck his car, taking his life. They first responded to a call that the suspect, identified as Zachary Gable Garrett, 28, was throwing property out of his apartment window and the front door and has threatened to harm staff in the past, the release said. Deputies spoke with Garrett but found no cause for arrest at that time. The deputies responding to the same location around 5 p.m. after Garrett was reported to be nude and acting erratically, according to the release. Deputies attempted to talk to the suspect on their second visit, but he was unresponsive and became combative and struck one of the responding deputies multiple times. Both responding deputies deployed their tasers without success, according to the release, before Garrett fled in his car. The deputies attempted to block Garrett, but he was able to get past them, crashing through an apartment complex gate entrance. Several witnesses reported the suspect intentionally rammed into Master Levin at a high rate of speed, as he was in his marked vehicle. Deputies tended to Levin's injuries and first responders with Hillsborough County Fire Rescue, attempting to extricate him from the vehicle. White House flags were ordered lowered to honor the late police officer. Despite their courageous efforts and their 
and those on the front lines at the Tampa General Hospital. Master Corporal Levin passed away while in the line of duty. Master Corporal Brian Levin had been part of the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office family since 1990, and he was just one day away from retirement. We will never forget Master Corporal Levin for laying down his life in the line of duty or the response of his squad members who did everything they could to ensure that the individual responsible for his death was apprehended. Levin leaves behind a wife, two adult children, one of whom is also a deputy with the same sheriff's office. Garrett was taken to the local hospital with minor injuries. Charges against him are forthcoming. And finally, Levin, Ryan Roy, 54, of Bel Rico, Florida, was killed in the line of duty with the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office. He was a good man with integrity, strength, and a great sense of humor. He was born June 6, 1966. Brian was raised in upstate New York. He then moved to Florida in his sophomore year of high school, where he met the love of his life, Kathleen. He began his 33-year-long career in law enforcement with the Largo Police Department. He then joined the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office in 1989. Brian was known for many things. He earned his brown belt in jujitsu the Saturday before he passed. He also taught himself to speak Spanish fluently and was a certified Spanish translator and was learning French, taught himself the bagpipes, and was in the process of learning the tin whistle which was a gift he received for Christmas. As an avid soccer fan, he not only enjoyed watching the sport, but he was also proud to have been a soccer coach for his kids, as well as for so many others. He was also a hometown Tampa Bay Lightning fan. Brian had a sense of adventure and loved to travel. He also loved a properly poured Guinness. Brian is preceded in death by his father, Kenneth Levin, in 2012. He is survived by his loving wife of 33 years, Kathleen Diane Russell Levin, his children, Caitlin Teresa Levin and Erin Liam Levin, his mother, Carol Levin, his sister, Pamela Waite, and his brother, Kevin Levin, and his wife. He will also be dearly missed by his in-laws. Today's show is dedicated to Master Corporal Levin. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there who serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. (laughs) We also dedicate the show to all the brave men and women that serve in the military from the birth of this nation through today and into its future. And we dedicate to them this song by Dave Bray. Last call. May God bless each and every one.
You're here listening to Southern Suns here live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, iTunes, YouTube, Facebook, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube. Ah, oh, the heck with it. We're all over the place, including iHeartRadio. So just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle of southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie, along with my oh-so-patient, calm, and collected co-host, Curtis, C.S. <laughs> We finally got that in, Curtis. Finally got that in. Oh, man, what a messed up day today is. Holy moly. Um, anyway, we did get get the show started, at least. And yeah. we are now everywhere we're supposed to be. <laughs> so I want to thank Friday. everyone. It, it, it's Friday. <laughs> so something about Friday. I just don't know what, but uh, I don't know. Sometimes uh, it could be like Friday the 13th sometimes on the show because of those who are opposed to shows like this. Yeah, I, I, I really, I don't understand how I had all the equipment up. I had everything. I made sure all the settings were correct. I walk away. I get a last minute call 15 minutes before the show that someone just got booked onto the show in the remaining slot. And I go to update the page and everything decides to reboot update. I mean, ah, Unbelievable. Oh, man. <laughs> it's one of those Mission Impossible things that they do when they want to really jam you. <laughs> you never know who's behind the scenes working the, you know, uh, the, the, the uh, black magic. <laughs> voodoo well, we, magic. We had, voodoo is true. Who do that voodoo that you do so well? Anyway, um, we're waiting for our first guest to call it. He should call it in a few moments. Uh, 
great friend of the show, Gregory Wright Stokes. Actually, he's a good personal friend also. His very first interview, his very first public interview was on this show. So whenever I see him and I talk to him, it's like, remember, I'm your first. <laughs> yeah, I remember that guy. Yeah. Uh, he even came up uh, to our Tea Party meeting here in South Carolina. But I want to make a comment here, uh, Curtis, because, you know, people think that, you know, I don't check my emails. You know, I do read all my emails. I mean, there's some that I've kind of skip over. Because <clears> if I get 50 emails from the same person trying to push this one individual, I only need one. I don't need 15 if you want to push that interview. Uh, anyway, I do get them also from listeners. And every now and then they, they make me just sit back. Because most of the time I'll get someone say, well, this sounds like a good person to do an interview with. Or how about you check this person out? Or do you think maybe you want to talk about subject? And yes, I do read all these, and a lot of them I take into great consideration. And I do use a lot of what you send me. But this individual, um, Forita, and her spouse uh, sent me a beautiful message. And this came back, uh, oh, geez, about, uh, about two weeks ago. And I actually did write a handwritten note to them and mailed it to them. It said, hello, I want to say that my spouse and I love you. We're avid fans. I hope everything is going okay during the pandemic. I was curious if you could please me, please send me a few stickers, pins, samples, or other promotional items to have. Actually, I don't have any of that stuff. So it makes me wonder whether or not I really should start doing that. So there's something we'll have to talk about, Curtis. Yeah. He wrote, I'd like to support you. Thank you very much and happy winter. For Rita, and she goes, I'm not spam. My emails have been going to people's spam folders recently for some reason. Uh, and yes, for Rita, yes, I do read the email. I do hold on to these, these beautiful um, messages that you send because I really do cherish them. You know, it, it means that someone actually out there is listening and I may have uplifted their day a little bit. So so I want to say thank you for the cards and letters. Keep the cards and letters coming. Anyway, I want to welcome onto the show, back again, since I was his first, Dr. Gregory Wrightstone. Gregory, how are you today? You always remember your first. Yeah, you were my <laughs> first interview after I published my – actually, before I published the book. And you'll be interested in that. And that book is Inconvenient Facts. Uh You'll be interested to know that right now the book is still number one bestseller on Amazon in a couple of categories after three years. That doesn't happen. So it's got no. some staying power, it's, and it's a powerful uh, tool that people use, are using it all over the world, actually. Our, uh, our Norwegian language uh, publication came out a few months ago, and right now they're raising money, taking donations uh, to get the Norwegian language version of inconvenient facts out to school children schools and libraries and they've already just in three days raised six thousand um, dollars and our the korean the korean language version will be done here shortly wow that's that's absolutely awesome leave me in your will <laughs> <laughs> no i don't think so um well i'll consider it because you've been so good to me Hey, and I, you know, I enjoyed, uh, I did come and speak to your, your group down in Beaufort. Beaufort. Is that how it's pronounced? Beaufort. Beaufort. Okay. Nope. Beaufort. 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 Bea
Carolina. They That's North Carolina. Okay. We're south. <laughs> I see. So, uh, but no, I'm a uh, lot of stuff going on right now that we can talk about. With uh, it's only been a week. It feels like a year since Biden was elected. Um, he's done a lot of damage in just a short period of time. Uh, he set the United States on a course to be um, economically destructive with his uh, climate change initiatives. Um, and if you want to just want me to dive right into it, I can. That you can, but you also have also a new initiative that you you've got called the CO2 Coalition. You want to tell us about that real quick? What that is? What that's about? Sure. The CO2 Coalition. It's a group of 60 of the top scientists in the world, uh, engineers, physicists, atmospheric physicists, uh, energy experts. Um, they, they include people like Dr. Will Happer from Princeton, who's an atmospheric physicist. Uh, he was responsible actually for, for figuring out how to be able to direct laser beams uh, through hundreds of miles or in a thousand miles to shoot down incoming, even back during the Cold War. Uh, he was responsible for that. He's brilliant. Uh, we've got Dr. Richard Lindzen, Dick Lindzen out of uh, MIT, uh, some of the top climatologists in the world. And uh, so we're, our, our mission is to spread the climate truth, the inconvenient facts, if you will, uh, about climate change. And pr- primarily, we point to the many benefits that the Earth is accruing uh, from increasing carbon dioxide emissions and increasing atmospheric CO2. And it's, and it's something that's, that's not, unless you're listening to me or one of our people, that's not out there. But as you know, I, I, I take a look at what's, what's happening. I'm a real world kind of guy. And I see that uh, the modest warming that's going on combined with increasing CO2 is leading to an earth that's thriving and prospering and greening and, and humanity is benefiting from that uh, increased crop growth. Uh, the ecosystems are, are thriving and prospering. Deserts are shrinking, not expanding. We're growing more food year after year, breaking crop growth records. Uh, and it's all due to this, this modest increase in warming and, and increase in CO2. So it's, a, it's really a huge story that's gone unreported. Uh, it's just opposite, isn't it, of what we're being told. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely opposite. And I was watching an interview Believe it or not, it was up on Newsmax, and they had, out of the panel, they had brought in one liberal, and she's ranting and raving. We've only had 20 years left before this world is destroyed. Didn't they tell us that to us back in the 1970s when we were all told to wear earth shoes and the world was freezing and we're all going to hell in a handbasket? Back in the 1970s, you had only 10 or 20 I, I, I <clears throat> okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I was on with uh, Steve, I forget his name. He, he, he's on Fox News Sunday nights. Uh, he had me in New York City before COVID hit, and I was on with this wild-eyed liberal, uh, and she was wild-eyed and liberal. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, it's they're, they're, you just have to shake your head, and you look at them, and they – they think that they're they're saying the right thing, but they're just uh, it's just false. Most of what they're saying, and and we need to call them out on it. And that's that's really my mission uh, is to provide the science, the facts, and the data about 
climate change and what's really happening because you're not going to get it in the media. You're not going to get it from the Wall, Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. Uh, and I'm, I'm disappointed, too, that we I'm, – I'm down in Arlington, Virginia, uh, speaking to you from Arlington right now, and there aren't many people left on Capitol Hill that, that get it, that really – uh, they might they might fight back against some of the destructive economically destructive things that are being proposed, but I just don't think they they understand really just what it is they're fighting against and and what they're fighting for and how this is going to harm america and and it started i think really with with the XL pipeline uh Biden canceled that uh immediately. He canceled out 11,000 to 13,000 high-paying jobs uh, for the XL pipeline. And that was going to bring – it was a $9 billion project. It was to bring 830,000 barrels a day down from the Alberta tar sands projects or project uh, down into Nebraska across the international border. Uh, and he was able to stop that when there's, on the first day of office, uh, harm international relationship between the U.S. and Canada – and it also makes us back, puts us back on the path of being dependent on Middle Eastern oil from people that don't wish us well. And this was just after we achieved energy independence. And, Amy, you, you may not know it. Very few people do. But there was another event that happened last week of importance. Uh, last week was the first time since 1985 that the United States did not import one barrel of oil from Saudi Arabia. And at this point, the fireworks should be going off. Yay, we got to wait. You know, how many how many wars for oil did we fight? And how many thousands of, of brave sons and daughters died or were maimed or harmed uh, fighting wars for oil? And, and because of fracking and horizontal drilling uh, and expansion of our, our own domestic resources, uh, we don't have to do that anymore. But under Joe's policies – uh, he's he's putting us that in energy independence at risk, and the, and Keystone Pipeline is just just one part of that. Uh, his other, really, what I think might be more destructive is his uh, ban on any new leasing or permitting. And by permitting, I mean permitting drilling of wells. So you can't. You're probably aware, but you can't produce oil out of a well you can't drill. Uh, it, and that's, that's what he wants. He wants to shut down drilling on federal lands. And what that means, Wyoming, Colorado, and particularly New Mexico, some 120,000 jobs are at stake with a long-term uh, shutdown that, like he's proposing. Um, it, it's bad. Uh, and they say, well, just go get, go get jobs in the renewable energy sector. You know, there's, there's jobs, high-paying jobs out there. Well, they're not, they're not out there. They said, but they're going to be. Well, before you put people out of work, you got to have a place for them to go first. And it's – you just have to shake your head at some of this stuff that they're doing. Oh, no wonder. Oh, I think it's funny. Go ahead. Oh. No, there's, they're also pushing this idea of environmental justice. Are, are you there, Annie? Oh, no. No. The, the moment you see something justice that is like, oh, good Lord, the garone yeah. goes up the so this, bottom yeah, of so my this, belly. This, uh, yeah, so, that, so environmental justice, uh, it's that the pe- people of color uh, are being disproportionately negatively affected by oil production and oil refineries and, and natural gas, and they're all being affected negatively. So what does he do? The, the Indi- Native Indians, the Utes, uh, complained that 
they're benefiting tremendously from oil production. And they said, no, 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 no. You know, he, so he exempted them from the rule. So what is it? Are they being harmed by it or are they being helped? On one hand, he's saying, oh, there's environmental justice. So all these people of color are being uh, harmed by oil production. But then he says, oh, yeah, but you Utes, uh, obviously, you know, you need this and it's beneficial. So it's just, you know, on one hand, he says one thing, and on, on the other hand, he says something else. Uh, so it's it's the crazy world we're living in right now. Over the weekend, I'm going to be designing a bumper sticker, a Trump bumper sticker that's going to say, miss me yet? Because yeah. no sooner did he close down the XL pipeline, those pink slips went out. And as you said, thousands of jobs. I think something that first day, 10,000 people were laid off. We're talking about not thousands of jobs. We're talking upwards to millions of jobs. Now, Trump got down the unemployment rate for uh, men and women equally down to 3.5%. The first time in history, unemployment, unemployed women was the same ratio as unemployed men at 3.5%. It lowered the unemployment rate for blacks, Hispanics, you name it, across the board. Everything was below 4%. And I turned around to my husband and I said, I give two weeks. We're going to see the unemployment rate climb above 9 and 10%. I said, by the end of February, it'll be well over 10% with what he has done just to the oil industry. And then John Kerry, oh yeah, uh, Mr. Flip-Flop, Mr. Ketchup, uh, turns around and says, well, you can't work in the oil industry, so go work in the solar panel industry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Does anyone know what goes into making these solar panels and how many toxic toxic elements are in them? Uh, One solar panel is far more dangerous to our environment than one gallon of oil. Yeah, if you're if you're a fan of of solar panels and uh, wind turbines and electric vehicles, then you you also must be a fan of forced child labor because that's what's required uh, to mine the cobalt over in the Congo. They're using ten and twelve year old boys in the mining operations for for cobalt for the batteries and for the mechanisms that are needed, the things that are needed for the for this electric, electric vehicle nonsense. And if you're a, very, a fan of electric vehicles, you must also be a fan of being indebted and beholden to China, who controls a huge percentage of the Earth's rare earth minerals that are required uh, for each one of these facilities. Uh, no, no thanks. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a fan of child labor, and I'm not a fan of being beholden to China. And just just as we were beholden and, and had to fight wars for oil in the Middle East, China will have that same control on the rare earth minerals that will be driving this supposed uh, new reset of the economy using electricity, electric vehicles and, and renewable energy. I don't like it, and I know you don't. Oh, oh, heck no. Heck no. Every time I see one of those little tiny electric cars, I, I turn around and laugh and go, where do you put the kids and the dog, much less the groceries? And by the way, your car will fit in the back of my SUV. I can pick it up yeah. and put it inside and have room to spare. Plus, a run to yeah. Lowe's. For lo- also realize is that the majority of these solar panels are being manufactured in where? China and India. We import them. We're not manufacturing them here. 
So we're supporting slave labor of the Muslim Uyghurs, of the imprisoned Uyghurs, yeah. of, of the political prisoners that are being held there and being forced into slave labor to create these things that's supposed to make you oh so great and green and so friendly for the environment and your fellow man. B.S. No, yeah, no thank roll. you. You are. <laughs> Don't stop. Don't stop. I'm just going to shut up and let you go. But you know the other part of this, the other part of this uh, ban on on federal permits and leasing, uh, you, you probably and listeners haven't heard about this. But we've got at the end of the Trump administration, he leased the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, it's in the northern portions of, of Alaska. It's thought to maybe represent the largest untapped accumulation of oil in, in North America. Uh, and what they were going to do with that was build a pipeline over and ship it down from Prudhoe Bay on the North Slope Pipeline. And, and why is that important? Because the North Slope Pipeline is at, I think it's around 70% capacity now and declining every year. At some point in the not-too-distant future, that pipeline, moving that that uh, uh, Prudhoe Bay oil uh, south to the United States, it's going to have to be decommissioned at some point. Uh, the addition, because just you, you, you're not going to be able to, to run it at the lower levels as the fields continue to climb. And it, it was important to have this ANWR, as it's called, Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, that new huge supply of oil and would probably extend the life of that pipeline for many decades. Um, so all these things add up into making us less independent and more dependent on those that uh, wish us harm in the Middle East. And I know it's, you just shake your head at where, where this is all going. And, and their main goal here, Annie, is they want for energy costs to skyrocket. And that's their main goal. And the reason is they want to increase costs of all the fossil fuels. If it's uh, transportation, it's gas or diesel uh, for electricity generation. If you're being generated from natural gas or coal, uh, they want those costs uh, to skyrocket. It's okay with them if they triple, quadruple, quintuple. Um, I don't know what the next one is for six, but it's it's a. It, it, but they want it to skyrocket. And why do they want that? Because at that point, uh, electricity generated from re- renewables or what I call the unreliables uh, will now become competitive, and you'll be buying your electricity now from will cost from coal and from natural gas will cost more than it will from the unreliables. And we need, we need, there are three words that I describe for uh, fossil fuel fired energy, and that's abundant, affordable, and reliable energy. And none of those three descriptives can be used for wind or solar. Uh, they're not, they're not abundant. They're not reliable and they're not affordable. Not only that, they they say, all right, so you don't want solar, so go for wind. Does anyone know what a wind turbine does to a local neighborhood or a local town? The vibration from it alone is causing mental illness and physical illness. Not not even starting to talk about killing the migrant birds. You know, I, I look at these solar farms that are popping up all over the place here in South Carolina and you're worrying about global warming, those solar panels are generating heat off the ground. So you're worrying about making the atmosphere more warmer? <laughs> you're doing it with just the stupid solar panels. 
yeah, the, the idiocy, they don't even see the hypocrisy in their, quote, green energy, unquote. Yeah, and there, there's, a, there's a rising tide of anger and resentment and pushback against these. Uh, I talked to a gentleman just this week. Uh, there's a, a planned offshore huge wind farm or offshore Rehoboth Beach, uh, Delaware, and the residents there are, are pushing back and fighting it. You know, these offshore wind farms are, you may not know, or maybe you do, uh, each one of them has a blinking bright red light. So once those go up and you look at night, you want to take that walk on the beach, uh, you're not going to see stars. You're going to see a bunch of blinking red lights out near the horizon. And it's it's not a pretty sight. It's dangerous. Uh, like you say, they're, they're bird-killing factories. They're it's, it's bad. And I, as you know, I'm from Pennsylvania. And in, and in Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Game Commission controls somewhere around a million and a half acres. And they, they control a lot of the big ridge tops along the eastern side of Pennsylvania, the mountain ridge tops that are uh, attractive for factory, or factory wind turbine farms. Uh, it's estimated that somewhere around 30% of the, of the industrial scale wind farms are on this Pennsylvania game land property. And, and it was two years ago that the uh, Pennsylvania game land commissioners voted unanimously to ban all wind projects on their property. They said it was, it was contrary to their mission, which was to protect wildlife, to protect the forest, to protect endangered animals and provide for the beauty for, for outdoorsmen and hunters. Um, and some of these guys listened to the, the commission meeting, and again, they voted unanimously against it. Uh, there were a couple of these these guys that were just vitriolic hatred because they lived close to these existing couple of existing turbines, and and they said no, thank you. And they well, they said some more things than that, but it was uh, they didn't <laughs> like it. Gregory and I wouldn't. Yes, sir. Yeah, we we all remember how in Obama's first term. He controlled both the House and the Senate, but that you know their policies backfired on them during the midterm elections. And um, I was wondering if you thought maybe that's a possibility in two years um, from now, when the midterms come, do you think they will lose control of the House and the Senate, or what? Well, I'm not a political scientist. I'm a scientist, but. I'm an astute observer, and that appears to be what happens uh, on the mid-year elections after a new president's elected, that uh, that, that president's party, I, I'm pretty sure, loses a lot of seats. So, yes, uh, and it's pretty thin, razor-thin margin as it is right now. And, uh, yeah, I think there's a possibility. But, again, I'm a scientist. And oh, sure. And, and uh, again, I'm, I'm a scientist, but uh, an astute observer of politics and the news. So uh, yeah, I think that's that's entirely like I think they may be overreaching, and maybe that's why yeah. they're they're doing so much so early, because they realize they're probably going to lose the Senate and the House in the next election. So let's get it yeah. all done now. Because people that's going to lose their jobs now, they're going to remember this two years from now. And they're not oh, going to yeah. be happy. Yeah, and even in my district, uh, we're in a, an area where we have a lot of uh, energy related uh, employment. And, and my congressman, Connor Lamb, uh, who, who defeated Sean Parnell, military hero, uh, by a razor-thin margin, 
in this past election. He's he's come out and he's okay with uh, with banning fracking on federal lands, and he's okay with with the XL pipeline being shut down. Uh, he says, well, it's not gonna it's not gonna harm my district, and and he, he's right in that the, there's no federal lands being developed in Pennsylvania uh, or across any parts of the East. Uh, but the higher energy prices that go along with these plants are going to hurt every single one of his constituents. Every single American is going to be punished by higher energy prices. And then just think of all the commodity. Every, every commodity that, you, that you're going to buy, the costs are going to go up because it takes energy to create that. And that energy needed is going to be a lot more expensive. And that's by design. That's what they want. They want, it, they want, they want expensive energy. It, it snowballs into every single, as you said, every single commodity that is in our life. Because think about the transportation costs alone. Just to the truckers are going to be feeling it first. You're going to see it in the manufacturing costs, and then it's going to skyrocket into um, your other service industries, including your now your local school districts. So your school taxes are going to go up because it can be more expensive to run the schools. And now who gets hurt the hardest on this one is the low income. Those that are at or below the poverty level or then it gets spread up to middle income. And all, all of a sudden, John Kerry's jet is going to be a little bit more expensive to fly around in. But don't worry. He's going to get what, – what did they call those credits? Um, oh, geez, Gregory. What are those special credits? Carbon credits. With? Oh, thank you. Those are the things. Uh, but yeah. it's not going to bother him because he can always you know, trade in some carbon credits. And, oh, by the way, wasn't John Kerry the one that stopped the wind farm from being built off of shore of Scotland because he would have seen it out the window of his estate? Yeah. But, no, no, don't worry. No. Don't worry. Go green. Yeah, no, this, okay. it's going to come back to bite them. It, it's going to come back to bite them. It, it, it just, it, it, it pe- people are people are wising up to them, and I think a lot of people just said, "Oh, well, that's just Joe. He's running for office. He's not going to actually do these crazy things." And then he went and did them, and people are going, "Oh my God, this guy's this guy's." Dangerous, and and he and, and what he's proposing is dangerous to the country, and dangerous to our economy, dangerous to you, like you say, the poorest among us are affected the most. It's a by these higher energy costs because they pay a higher percentage of their income uh, for energy, as do more wealthy people. You know, wealthy people like like you, Annie, um, and uh, right. yeah. <laughs> And uh, it's 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 a it's a regressive taxation scheme is what really what it is, uh, and and it's, it's so again it, by regressive I mean it harms the poorest the most, as opposed to a, a progressive taxation scheme would would tax the wealthiest among us like you Annie the the most, and uh, well, it, not only that if if you think as it snowballs down, as costs go up. Also, the cost of other items that are necessities would be medical care because now the hospitals and the practices are going to have to increase their fees to cover the increased cost of energy and the creation of medications. The cost of your prescriptions are going to go way up. And now all of a sudden you think you can afford that prescription that you need for your heart and now all of a sudden, the end of the month, and the money's not there. And what's the first thing that goes 
off of your budget. It's your life insurance. It's your medical doctor visits, your dental visits, your eyeglasses, and prescriptions. If you can't afford the prescription, you're not going to buy it. So you think, I'll eat a little healthier. You know, I'll get a little more rest. That's not going to save your life. And this is not just going to cost jobs. It's going to cost lives. Amen. Sister. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> and it's, it's, but it's just, you're right. It's a snowballing effect on this uh, one, one piling onto the other. And I just, I just tremble to think what, what else is coming down the road uh, in just a week. Now we've seen just some, just horrifying proposals come out. Uh, one of the things is Chuck Schumer. Now he wants Biden to declare that there's climate emergency and that way it gives him broad authority to do even more without uh, congressional approval. And, you know, with the, with the Senate 50, 50 and a guy like Joe Manchin from West Virginia in there, he was, I think he was going to be a, a stopgap for some of the crazy things. But if, if he can just declare a, a climate emergency and a crisis that uh, he'll be able to use a, what did Obama said? I've got my phone and I've got my pen. Uh, and Biden's certainly looking like he's not uh, scared to do things that will harm the economy in, in order to advance uh, what he thinks is, is saving the planet. Uh, and when, in fact, this planet doesn't need saving. It needs needs saving from bad policy. Yeah. Now, you're going to see a bunch of lawsuits start to pop up. Already, the Western Energy Alliance has hit Biden with a lawsuit over the closing of these leases. What people don't realize is like, all right, fine, um, no more drilling. But these companies have already bought the leases. They've invested a ton of money into buying these leases, doing the exploration and knowing that, all right, fine, this is this is where we're going to drill. And they key it up for their employees, and their whole business model is keyed up around this lease, and now they're shut down. So I don't blame these companies for saying, wait a minute, you no. sold us the lease knowing that we want to drill for oil, and now you're basically shutting our business down. Matter of fact, government is now deciding what businesses can or cannot exist by this very action. I see a constitutional challenges and uh, legal challenges across the board on this one. And guys, go for it. Go for it. Hit Absolutely. Them. Absolutely. There's going to be a lot of consequences on this one. And there's more to come. There's going to be more to come. I heard, yep. I don't know if you heard this, but I had my little ear to the railroad tracks. And I heard there's a, a movement to increase the gas tax. Have you heard that one? Mm. Um, no, but that, that's all part and parcel of what they're trying to do. Sure. That, that, that's coming. Sure. Federal gas tax increase. Yeah. I, I mean, I haven't heard any specifically, but you would imagine that would be a, a logical, not, not a wise, but if you're going to, if you're trying to increase uh, gasoline prices to make electric vehicles look better. Sure. That's, that, that would be a, uh, pretty logical unwise thing for them to do is, is to increase gasoline taxes. This is going to be a very interesting next four years. And I don't think Biden is going to be in office by the end of this year. I think it will be Queen Kamala who will be uh, taking the throne there. And now yeah, I have a maybe. 
with, mm-hmm. with these number of um, executive orders and executive actions uh, that Biden's been signing, I'm wondering if just there's someone in the White House there, there's a, a group of people going, hey, you know what, here's a new, another crazy idea. Let's write up another executive order or executive action. And there's a difference, folks, between an executive order and executive action. Executive action is mostly ceremonial. Executive order is enforceable as if it is law. Uh, so watch out for the executive orders. Um, people out there that go, hey, listen, we weren't able to do anything uh, with this for the last four years. But here's all the stuff we've been hiding and holding. And, yeah. you know, this is the stuff coming alive. And they're just throwing stuff onto the, the uh, resolute desk and say, all right, here's a stack for you to sign today. And this is well planned. And executed. They, they they give him credit. Man, they had a pile of executive orders for him to sign one right after the other. Um, so uh, they they were prepared, unfortunately. So they're not they're not uh, incompetent. They're getting their job, getting uh, imposing their will and destructive will on the American people. And we just need to fight back. And that's that's if you're if your listeners want. Uh, information concerning climate change, you know, you know the book to go to. It's Inconvenient Facts. Uh, and if they want to learn more about the CO2 Coalition, uh, you can go to CO2Coalition.org or to learn more about what I have to say, it's InconvenientFacts.xyz. And uh, I appreciate you having me on today. Uh, let's do it again before too long. Oh, absolutely. And if you end up deciding to take a little drive south, you know, let me know. I'll do that. (laughs) All right. Uh, Check out Gregory Wrightstone. The links are on the show page to the CO2Coalition.org, as well as his Twitter account, his Facebook account, and the book XYZ. How's that, Greg? Outstanding. I got (laughs) to run. Thanks, Annie. Take care. Gregory Wrightstone. Check them out. Oh man, <laughs> excuse me. I, I think I'm coming down with a cold or something. I've just developed a cold. Sound like it. Yeah, it sounds I, like it. I I don't mean to cough into the microphone, but they're coming up spontaneously, and of course I get a little excited, <laughs> and of course it's making me even worse. Oh geez. So we're waiting for our next guest call in, uh, Dr. Bruce Hartman, and my phone is whacking out. I'm telling you, today has been one of those days. Um, because of everything that was going on, my husband last night, I had to take him over to the doctor for a COVID test today, and I didn't get out of the car. I'm sitting in the car. I was checking my emails, doing a couple other things. Never left the car. I get out of the car. I go in the house. I'm putting everything together for the show, and I'm going, all right, where's my cell phone? I never, ever, ever lose my cell phone. I always know exactly where it is. So, all right, fine. I am. I must have put it down. Forgot where I put it. Normally, it's inside my purse nine times out of ten. Could not find myself on anywhere, Curtis. I am. Wasn't in the car. I rang. It's got to be inside the car. I probably left it in the center console, or something, which I've done in the past. I uh, believe me. You ring it, and you hear the phone because um, my phone plays the song "God Bless America" again. <laughs> so. It's a, a very unusual ringtone, very noticeable. And I'm I'm ringing it, I'm ringing it, and the phone's not ringing. I don't hear the tone. I'm tearing the car apart. 
I am tearing the car apart, going into places in the car where I knew I didn't even go today. Cannot find the phone. I'm going in and out of the house, in and out of the house. And it's freaking cold out. It was like 32 degrees this morning here in the south. That's unusual. Very, Very unusual. So I think running in and out of the house with no coat on, dummy me, what do you think, Ann? So I think I may have picked up a cold, but I did find my phone. Believe it or not, was it was it? Under, the, under the passenger seat. It must have dropped out when I picked up my purse, and my husband, when he got out of the car, must have kicked it underneath the seat, not knowing it. And I got jammed under the seat, partially under the carpet, under the seat, which is why I couldn't see it. And why the ringtone? I have no idea. But now I got the ringtone back. Go figure. Wow. I don't like it when I'm, I'm searching for my phone and I had the volume down, so it doesn't matter if I'm calling it from another phone or not. I'm, I'm not going to see it unless it's like nighttime or something and it lights up under the car seat or something. <laughs> but that is something that is scary when you say, oh, man, I had the ringer off. So that's not going to help calling. <laughs> you know, I'm notorious that when I get off the show, um, I forget to turn the ringer back on. And I'll find out the next day that there were text messages and phone calls. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious for, for forgetting to turn it back on. So I'm trying to wow. send over to Dr. Hartman's agent uh, a reminder to have him call. Um, well, when, let you, know that- you guys, when you guys go to the hospital, are you allowed in? Because here, some hospitals... Say like the VA, they will not allow visitors, and it just has to be the patient, unless that patient really can show that they need the person with them to go in. I was just curious, what's it like in South Carolina? Well, I can't say for all the hospitals. I know that um, I wear a shield. I don't wear a mask. And um, when I took my husband up to MUSC, and at that point he was still on a certain pieces of equipment that only I knew how to detach them so he can have an x-ray or an MRI. Um, They were not going to let me in because I was wearing a shield. Now I carry with me a letter from my doctor stating that I medically cannot wear a mask. Um, I also carry with me a little pamphlet I made that quotes the exact area of the HIPAA Act as well as the Americans with Disabilities Act and warning people that it should you deny me access, even if I am not wearing a shield, you will be in violation of the HIPAA Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act, and you will be subject to fines and possibly up to a 10-year jail sentence. They're not happy with me when I, when I pushed that way, but when I took them up to MUSC, I ended up having to pull that. And finally, eventually, they got some manager there that said, all right, fine, you're not worth the temperature. You've been self-quarantined. You haven't been in a crowd of 50. You go through those questions that are really so friggin' annoying. They oh, yeah, let a me. litany of it. Oh, yeah. But as to here locally, I have no problems. No one. I actually had only one person, and it was a nurse. Yes. No, yesterday. <laughs> yesterday. There's always one. I, always one. And I was taking my husband for his pre-op visit. And she starts lecturing me about wearing a mask. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Uh, no, that, that's not something you do to Annie. That is not 
a good idea if you decide to pick them. Even though I sat there very quietly, let my husband answer all the questions. I didn't put my two cents in. She must have thought I was one of these little docile, yes, ma'am, you know, no, ma'am. Uh, whatever my husband says is okay by me. Uh-uh, uh-uh. She did not, did not know what she stepped into. <laughs> so you enlighten her? <laughs> very powerfully. Very powerfully. Uh, just basically let her know that there are those of us that medically cannot wear a mask. And she started to push. And I said, I'm repeating, there are those of us who cannot wear a mask. And if I'm not your patient, you should not know need to know the reason. And all of a sudden, she's kind of like got the hint that I was going to throw the HIPAA act in her face. And she started to back off and she said, well, what about the gators? I'm sorry, folks. If any of you out there wear these stupid gators, throw them out. They tell you that, oh, they have this really fine weave that protects you from having the virus you know, penetrate. Oh, sure. The problem is, is that if someone wearing the gator has the virus, when they exhale, or when they cough, when they sneeze, that gator, because it's such a fine mess, actually mesh actually breaks apart the particles, exiting the individual. So now the virus is being expelled in smaller particles that your mask, your shield, will not prevent from penetrating your protective equipment. Hmm. I've had people in the professional field when I tell them the same thing. It's like, well, the, a study came out and said it's the masks do work. <laughs> I'm like, well, show me the study. <laughs> Why? The masks so well that nine, over 90% of the individuals that contract the COVID virus, that prove positive for the COVID virus, 90% are people that always wear a mask. Now, that's, that's interesting, true. isn't it? Because, number one, people don't know how to handle the masks. You see them pinching them the nose all the time or handling or smoothing them or moving them up and down. And you see people playing around with the damn things nonstop, which means they're also touching their face. So if they touched a surface and then touched their face or if they came in close contact with someone that may have the virus and then touched themselves, especially adjusting the stupid mask, they are transmitting the virus onto themselves. The masks don't work. I would say if you're a medical professional or you're a first responder, I would say, yeah, go ahead. If you can, wear the mask. And if you can, double it with the shield to give you double protection. Because my own doctor contracted COVID because he went to a patient that had COVID, went into their home with only the mask. And he normally wears the mask and shield. And he said, I did it to myself. I went knowingly to help a patient that has the virus, mm-hmm. and I didn't help her protect myself. And at that point, when he leaves, sanitize your hands, then take your mask off, discard it, sanitize your hands a second time because you don't know what's on the mask, and then you're fine. But he didn't take his precaution. And everyone uses the masks multiple times. They don't use them just once. Come in contact with an individual, go into a store, walk out, and then throw them out. And the next time you go, take a clean, fresh one. People don't do that. So they keep on putting them on, and they keep on infecting themselves. So whether or not it's with the COVID virus, it could be with the flu, the regular flu, or a common cold. 
Hey. You tell so me. Do you think do you think Biden still wants us to think that we're doing our patriotic duty by obeying such um regulations or, or whatever decrees or I mean, it's where's the science behind all this? This is what I wanna know. Well, you know, He wants everybody to wear this for, what, 100 days or something? um, It's crazy. They can wear it. I mean, if you want to wear it, that's fine. I got no problems with that. But I don't think, you know, because I do have a Bill of Rights here in this country, I don't feel that I should be made to do something that I I deem unnecessary, you know. All right. Now, you know what? I see it. I got I got to say something, uh, Curtis, because I screwed up. I'm supposed to be calling Dr. Hartman. So you keep on talking. I'm going to put myself on mute here and then try to call through to Dr. Hartman. Mm-hmm. I screwed up. Uh, I <laughs> I, I'm not perfect, but I'm close, closest thing to it. Okay, I'll be right like back. Like I said, it's Friday, so anything goes on Fridays. But as I was saying, I I believe that I still have rights, you know, what few rights we do have left. And um, I think... We should try to hold on to these rights. I mean, every time you give a little bit, you know, you give an inch, they want to take a foot, and you never, never get those rights back. You know, it's just like it's like when um, the left and those um, rhinos that go along with them, whenever they they come out with a social program, it never goes away. It never. Now, it's the opposite of your rights. They want to take those away. But when it comes to social programs and things like that, they want those to stay, you know, for as long as, like, permanent. So I I really think that the country's going to get fed up with these folks over the next two years. And um, Republicans will regain the House and the Senate, hopefully. The thing is, you know, who are we putting in there? And that's that's a sad thing because we we really need more more patriot type uh, um, lawmakers going to Washington. Um, these these people that claim to be conservative and this and that and the other, and then when they get in there, they they show their true stripes. That's not doing us any good. That's not doing the country any good. But we're stuck with them until the next election. So I think we we really have to do a better job of vetting people who are running for office because I'm I'm telling you, we we need the help. I mean, where where was the help when Donald Trump needed it? I mean, he put in three people on the Supreme Court. I mean, he fought hard for these people. He didn't give up on them. And where were they at? You know, they turned their back on him when he he needed them most. And that's what has a lot of people like myself upset. Uh, not with the party. I don't blame them on the party. Um, no more than I would blame um, Christianity because they have a few bad um, ministers. You know, I mean, you just don't you don't go about blaming you know the product you know because of a few bad you know um, things that we produce. But we have to do a better job of vetting. And these people, they have to, once they get to Washington, remember why they were sent there. You know, we didn't send them there to, you know, 
get along. We didn't send them there, you know, to join this big, big Washington elite social club. They are supposed to be there to to represent us and to, you know, vote what's in our best of interest, not their own. These guys have got to start wor- stop worrying about their reelection, you know, do the right thing <clears throat> at the risk of not being reelected. Then you really know you got a true fighter there. But too many of these career politicians, all they're concerned about is the next election and, you know, which way the wind's going to blow. That's how they vote. So we've seen how that worked under Bill Clinton and that crew. Um, He's always putting his finger up to the wind. And whatever direction the wind was blowing, that's the way, you know, he went as far as policies and things. Um, We, as a party... I think we have a very good history, and I think we should stand on that. Curtis, Are you back you, in? You notice, yeah, I'm back. If you notice, well, unfortunately, I could not get a hold of our guest. The phone just kept on ringing, no voicemail, no mm. answering machine. So I sent his agent a little note, so we'll see what happens. Mm. But Bruce was always fun to have on later on, too, so we can always hold him in reserve. Anyway, if you notice, wow. there, we've got... Schumer and Pelosi pushing through all this stuff and Biden signing away like crazy. You don't hear a lot from the majority of Republicans in the House or the Senate. You only hear a handful of people. And who do you hear? Matt Goetz, Josh Lowry, um, even Ted Cruz is kind of eerily silent. Uh, but you do hear from uh, Rand Paul. It's a handful of either libertarian or ultra conservatives that are speaking out. Um, Mitch yep, McConnell the is rolling over like, you know, oh, the hooker down the street. Just, just whatever you want, you know, go ahead, you know, have your fun. And they're just not challenging. Even appointments going into cabinet positions, no challenges. Yeah, yeah, don't hear any hard hitting questions? You know, where's that's the spine? That's that country club mentality they have up there in Washington. You know, even though they may be opposing parties politically, they all look after each other. Those elites, and it's sad, but um, they they've been there too long. They need to be replaced. It's going to be solution. about revolution coming in two years in 2022 this would be a midterm election it's going to be a ballot box revolution and i'm i pray that the american people wake up and smell the coffee because there's always already buyer's remorse when they close down the keystone pipeline within hours the social media started lighting up i just got laid off there was a actual up on Twitter. I was watching uh, a little dispute going back and forth. This one woman kept on, you know, lecturing her friends on why they should vote for Biden. And the husband comes home yesterday or the day before when he closed down the Keystone Pipeline. I just got laid off. And is another 10,000 pink slips going out to other workers. I'm hearing up and down the line, we're all being laid off. And he started getting really pissed with his wife's friend. 
and the wife turns around and goes after her friend and says, see what you did? You turned around and told all these people to vote for Biden. Now my husband lost his job because of you. Ooh. Ooh. Well, you know, I, I hear people all the time tell me, you know, when the subject comes up, well, I'm not into politics. And yet these are the same people that go out and vote, and they are uninformed and misinformed voters, and that's one of the problems that that I have with people who vote that that do not follow politics because they, they have no idea what policies they're voting for. They have no idea what the agenda is of the party they're supporting. Um, and then they wonder why nothing changed. <laughs> you know, Einstein had a great phrase for that. You know, you can't solve a problem on the same level you created it. You know, there's there's that, I'm probably going to say it wrong, but it goes something similar to this. First they came to the Jew, for the Jews, I said nothing because I'm not Jewish. Then they came for the Catholics, and I said nothing because I'm not a Catholic. Then they came for the politicians, and I said nothing because I'm not into politics or a politician. And then they came for the soldiers, and I said nothing because I'm not a soldier. And then they came for me, but there was no one to speak up for me. So when they turn around and say, you don't, you don't know what's going on and you couldn't care less, one day they're going to come for you. They're coming for us already, Curtis. You know that. They're telling oh, us yeah. because you vote for Trump, you're an evil person. People are losing they are their jobs. They're losing their jobs simply because they had the audacity to go to D.C. that one day had nothing to do with the rioting or the or, or breaching the Capitol. They just simply went to support their president and because they were proud conservatives, proud Republicans, proud Trump supporters. But how dare you? You're an insurgent because you attended a peaceful rally. Didn't matter that a handful, handful of people I mean, less than 1%, not even 1%, 1% of 1% of 1% were the guilty parties. And they deserve to have their heads handed to them. But they lost their job. They had death threats. Their families had been threatened. Hmm. And all because they had the audacity to support their president. And it's even worse. People turning around identifying individuals they see in the crowd at the peaceful rally who actually were not even there. There have been individuals that have been fired from their jobs, have had death threats, have been threatened because they look like someone that was in the crowd. They may be 900 miles away or maybe not even in the country at the time, but because someone thought they recognized him, they were outed and their lives in shambles because they... They laid it on heavy for this one-day event that was only instigated by a few people. And some of those I heard were were left-wing radicals that infiltrated the march down to the Capitol. Um, but they laid the heavy on it for this one event. Yet um, you go to Portland where they've been rioting and taking over buildings and things for months on end, and you don't really hear anything negative about them there. 
they're peaceful protesters and this and that other, you know. When you juxtapose the two, you can see the hypocrisy. Vice President Queen Camilla publicly said, oh, this isn't going to stop. It's going to go on and on and on. And it should. And she was supporting the Antifa and Black Lives Matter rioting and looting and assaults on innocent individuals by those, I'm calling them, they're militias. They, they, they say, all right, fine, militias don't exist on the left. No, you've got armed insurgents actively overthrowing a local government. That's a militia. Whether it's on the right or the left, that is a militia. It may and not when be illegal. Did it become, illegal. When did it become a crime? When did it become a crime to defend your your own property, like that couple, you know, that had, you know the guns and stuff, and they end up getting arrested. None of the people that broke into the neighborhood and and threatened to burn their house down, but who goes to jail and who gets you know threatened with lawsuits? It's the couple defending themselves. It's crazy well, in America. It's a private gated community that they broke into. It wasn't as if, you know, you just stroll down the street from Main Street to the next street and there's no gate, no security, nothing. It was a private gated security that they broke into. So, no, that's all right. No, it, it's, it's the minorities. that they're, they, They've been underprivileged and they, no. Actually, they've got more privileges than you or I had. Because we're law-abiding and because we sit on the right and not on the left. No, no, no. They've got more rights simply because of which political affiliation. I don't think that's how our republic is supposed to work. Well, you know, it kind of reminds me of um, the riots in Baltimore a couple of years ago where the mayor told the police just to stand down, let them have their, you know, chance to vent. (laughs) And and it was crazy that a, a mayor would say something like that, you know. So what did these people do? You know, they tore up the city. They were emboldened, you know, told the cops to stand down. This may oh, be our caller, our guest. I, I do believe this is Sergeant Mike. Sergeant Mike McGrew, want to welcome you onto the show and welcome you back again. How are you doing today? I'm doing really good. Thanks for having me again. Oh, it is always our pleasure. There is so much to talk about. We were starting to um, talk about what was going on in D.C. with the breaching of the Capitol. What was going on? Uh, I've been hearing a lot of things ahead of time. Uh, that, you know, you're, you're a retired cop. I'm a retired cop. There's a certain place prior to a large event, and one thing that was blaringly obvious is that the FBI – not do a risk assessment. They always do a risk assessment. They always work with the local PD with that risk assessment. Um, but they did not have overtime manpower or additional manpower with the local police. There was no risk assessment. There was no FBI agents. And at one point, there was a call prior to the rally to have the um, National Guard be present but that was never sent out. It was never I, – so many things are wrong. I, I, I'm getting angry because good cops were put at risk because someone has a political agenda. 
Yeah, I think anytime you have a, a big event, um, there's there's a law enforcement response to it. But then there's also the resources that are needed for law enforcement to do their job. And, and I think that sometimes is where the politics gets uh, gets involved in a situation. I was in the you know, I was in the Los Angeles riots um, after the Rodney King verdict, and you know there was there was preparation that people wanted to do during that time to get ready uh, for any civil unrest that might happen after a verdict came out. But there was also politics that that happened that prevented some of that preparation. And I actually responded down there. Um, I was with several other officers from from our uh, county up in Santa Barbara on a mutual aid response. Uh, we, we we were told that we couldn't arrest anybody because just the lack of preparation that happened, and and it was sad. Um, I think uh, just because you want to <laughs> you want to do the best job, you want to be equipped to do it. You want to you want to be able to have uh, enough booking areas to to take people that you arrest and. And keep them safely, and and there's just all kinds of things that goes into the preparation, like you said, of a of a, of a major event, and and uh, they didn't have that, and so the riots went on for five days, and people were watching folks running in and out of uh, stores and looting them, and, and seeing no accountability or any anything else happening to those people, and that just that continues to spread. So, you know, it, I I think as they did learn a lesson, and uh, when there was a second trial in that, uh, it was a federal trial. They actually came up, they gave training to the different agencies that were around the, um, the Los Angeles area. We received training on how to rescue somebody like Redmond Albini, who was um, pulled out of a truck and attacked by gang members, and, and just how to respond and, and, and be effective in, in this way. And so that training was there. There were people that did know how to do that, but the preparation wasn't there, and I, and I think that's you know when you look at an event, a horrible event that happens at the Capitol, you know the, the the police officers were overwhelmed, and and that's not their fault. They're standing on the line, as you all well know, um, shoulder to shoulder, doing their best job. But um, it, you know they need to have the the, the proper backup and and just uh, um, backing of, of of those who are going to put them out there on the line. So, yeah, well, you know, obviously something wrong. Well, you know, something was a little weird because, you know, I've had the riot training through FIPD, and I didn't see any of the formations that we used to use. First, you would use one where you know you don't have a straight line without having any backup behind you. And I was watching a lot of what was going on. So if a guy went down, there was normally several different offices, a group at minimum, that would be able to pull that officer out of harm's way and step into whatever breach there was. I didn't see any of these tactics that I knew I was trained on. Matter of fact, I didn't see a command vehicle anywhere in the area. Um, The barricades were the flimsiest at the best. It was almost as if they were inviting the breaching of the Capitol. They said, all right, we've got a Trump rally because it's these people, these rabid Trump followers, well, why don't we turn around and we know that Antifa already had instigators at the edges of the crowd, you know, heckling them on, make, pretending to be Trump you know, supporters. 
we know that they were buying the Trump hats from the vendors right there at the rally. So how do you know whether or not this person's a Trump supporter or not? Oh, where the hat is instigate. So it was looking as if they wanted something to happen to say, oh, those nasty people, those people that support Donald Trump, those people that vote Republican, we've got to do something to make them look really bad. Yeah, I I I don't know, um, you know, the intent of the people that were planning this. I mean, I, I'd have to believe that if the the Capitol Police that their leadership would want to protect the Capitol, I I I I think that's their heart. I mean, we worked with people that, um, you know, in every agency, and people. People are people. They have different views. But when it comes to law enforcement, I mean, you're you're there, and you, and you know that you're there to do a job. Whether you think um, the the crowd that you're um, controlling or protecting um, agrees with your values or not, you know, and that's I I've always every time I was on the we in Santa Barbara we have a lot of protests, and um, we're a destination location. A lot of people come here, and when there's an issue that happens, there's a lot of protests that happens in this. In this area, and so even after the Iraq war started, we had weekly protests. And uh, one of the things that I really was, um, I was just really pleased with and, and proud of is that we could be there to to protect somebody's First Amendment right, no matter who they were. You know, and and when you had an anti-police um, uh, protest that where the people didn't like you, the people that showed up for the protest, it, at least. You know that you know what they they can say what they need to say. We're going to keep them uh, safe. We're going to keep the community safe, and and that's our job. And and it just it never really played. You know that. I mean, that's not that's not the heart of law enforcement that I've ever been a part I, of. Or you know something that's supposed. No, know, I agree with you. Percent, but but it's it's the higher up. That's who I'm really pissed off at. Because you had the yeah, acting yeah, deputy yeah. chief that said she puts the call out for National Guard and it was ignored, which means that goes all the way up to Speaker Pelosi. She, in effect, in charge of the Capitol Police. So I lay it directly on her shoulders and her desk. Yeah, it's, you know, those decisions do, they have, um, there's consequences to them. And, and I, I think if people looked at that again, they would say, you know what, we need to have more, we need to have more security here. We need to have more officers, whatever it might be. And, you know, I, I can't speak for somebody's heart and their intent on something, but I, I can tell you it didn't work out well. And, and when people get, um, you know, some of the politics that happen are one is money. Usually, uh, you know, how much money do you want to spend on an event? Because it, it costs money to put personnel out there, and and is it going to be a good use of a resource? And and so people have to um, consider that. There's other things that, um, you know, there's politicians that I've seen that go, well, we don't want this presence or we don't want that presence, you know, and and those are, you know, they're they're the boss's boss. Um, you know, the chief's boss or the politicians a lot of times and and so, you know, that's where that's where it can that's where politics can enter into decision making on what you do. Um now I I think everybody agrees that that the uh, what happened at the Capitol was horrible. Um we lost you know, we lost life, we lost the cops life. It was it was just a horrible a horrible incident and I don't think anybody can sit back and be um, 
happy with how that all went. Um, they're, they're, you know, it's important that they start looking at it and saying, you know, here, <laughs> we can never let this happen again and learn, learn from what did happen there. Um, I, 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 you know, it, it's just, a, it's hard to sit there and watch that when you've been on those front lines and, and, and you just feel for the folks that are there and they don't have the resources to stop what they're doing. And, and there was, um, you know, the people want to cast, they want to be a, a you know, Monday morning quarterback. And that's what happens in law enforcement all the time. You know, we make split second decisions. We're out there and, and we have to make life and death uh, decisions within a split second. But then you'll have a lot of people that, some that don't even understand uh, the situation that we're in, but, but they'll take them years to analyze what we've done. So in this case, I, I know you and I know that, that um, our hearts go out to those that were on the front lines, and, and hopefully this is something that you know the, the leadership is going to have to keep themselves accountable for, and um, and they're going to have to to learn uh, that this this is not the appropriate response. Um, no. I, I don't know that you know I don't I don't know the intelligence reports that they receive. I don't know anything about that, but I do know that that is. It is a big factor, and you know, people monitor. The law enforcement will monitor on social media. And they'll monitor um, whatever they can to get intelligence on on what may happen, and, and and actually, in a lot of cases, identify agitators that are in, in the crowds as well. But, but uh, so, uh, no. yeah, it didn't it didn't go well, <laughs> and I'm not sure. No. What, uh, I, I, yeah. I'm not sure, you know, why people didn't make the right decisions to, to have the right resources there, but um, I, I yeah, certainly hope that they learned from. You know, nine, 99.9% of 10, it's from the top down that all the problems come from, not from the bottom up. When I watched the crowds in the offices, you know, having been there on the front line, like I said, my heart broke them. I, I will never get out of my mind's eye the scene in New York City where a white Black Lives Matter supporter is in the face of a black officer as he's standing in line. Fellow officers are looking at this guy as he's taking the full foul mouth spittle that is being hurled at him. Oh, I, I, I just, how dare she? I think she has that. Oh, man. I, I just, I, I if I was standing there, I don't know if I could have kept my hands in my pocket, honestly. But having stood that line and having the vitriol hurled at me, they have no idea who you are, where you come from. We're people, just like everyone else out there. We're husbands, we're wives, we're brothers, we're sisters, we're aunts, uncles, grandfathers. We're sons and daughters. We're your next door neighbor helping you mow your lawn. What makes you think it's an us versus them attitude, and that's the, what we're dealing with, and that they have that us versus them, so we're the easy target that they can get their political aims pushed through, and you know how that feels, and unfortunately, it's hard to explain to someone who's not been in those shoes. Yeah, it's it's people don't get it all the time. You know, I, I know a lot of times when I was a officer and people just start yelling at you for no reason. You know, one of the questions I'd ask them is, you know, what why are you yelling at me? You know? <laughs> and they and they didn't really even know, you know, it was something else going on with them. And 
And then, and then when you get large crowds, as you well know, they, they start getting an, an anonymity that happens where people, you know, they, they lose their idea, identity in the crowd and they start doing things that they would never normally do. And, and that's why it's important to be um, prepared when you go into riot situations to, to, to grab the agitators and, and make them lose that anonymity where, you know, if you're going to start inciting or you're going to start making movements that endanger people, then we're going to arrest you, you know, and we're going to, and, and we're going to do it professionally and, but, but immediate and, and that needs to happen. That's, that's the key to any, any type of crowd controls is to have the ability to do that. If you're just standing there just saying, no, no, go back, go back. And you don't have uh, the ability to back up, you know, the, the demands that you're telling the, the crowd, it, it's not going to go well. But, uh, Sergeant. You know, I, I, yeah. Sergeant, this is the co-host. Hey, I, I was just wondering, um, today's law enforcement officer not only has to be concerned with his own safety or her safety, but being sued, you know, if they do the wrong thing. And I'm sure that weighs a lot on their minds. And a lot of them just don't want to get involved, you know. Um, when, it, you know, their, their, you know, future is at risk of a lawsuit if they take a certain action and get a, a, a bad result. Um, how do you think that's, in, in, you know, impacting the, the recruitment of new, you know, law officers? Well, I, th- I think the the entire anti-police sentiment that's happened recently has really affected recruitment efforts. Um, the mainstream media has taken isolated events and they've tried to make that look like that's what every police officer does or this, you know, this is what's happening. And it's not true. You know, we, we for 30, 31 years, I worked with people as courage and character who did heroic acts every day. And I know that tens of thousands of those acts are happening every single day in America. And, and um, you know, when you turn on the TV and you don't see that, you don't see, you know, the recognition that, uh, of the job that these folks are doing. You only see the negative things and, and people trying to uh, just paint a wide, you know, with a wide brush. This, this that negativity over an entire industry, it's... It's it's not good. It just causes officers to retire. I know that there's a lot of officers that are retiring early. I know that there's officers that are leaving the profession, and and I know that it's very hard to to recruit. When police officers come into this profession, they're not going to get rich. It is a tough job, Um, but it's a calling. It's something where it's on your heart to serve at a level that most people will never understand. And we have to support those folks. We really have to be there for them. And and when you have um, leaderships in different areas that don't support the police, you know, it's they're gonna they're gonna back off a little bit because they they'll know when they're being supported or when they're not. Um, you know, I, I think the Attorney General in New York sued the New York um, Police Department. And, you know, that's yeah. what kind of message is that to, to send? And, and you know, that's, that's horrible. And, and so here you have, you know, when I went out and worked, I, I knew that the city had my back. You know, I knew that I, I needed to be, uh, you know, 
within the law and within policy of my department, and 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 that's how I conducted myself. But I also knew that you know there's a real good likelihood uh, that you can be sued at any time in your career uh, for a lot of different reasons that, that are not justified, you know, in my opinion. That you know where somebody sues and and they don't win, but they're just looking for you know deep pockets or they're coming after a city or whatever it might be. But um, and there's you know and that's part of the it's part of America you know we have a court system it's not always perfect but I think it's the best in the world um, so you know it's 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 but but there are things that are set up for officers where you know if they have a good city or county attorney that backs them up and their decision making on things or even the unions provide uh, there's legal counsel that's that's available uh, through uh, legal defense funds for for the officers that keep them safe and 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 yeah, it's horrible because you're going out and not only putting yourself on the line, but when it comes to a lawsuit, you know you've just put your whole family's um, uh, livelihood on the line basically, and you know it could it could be really devastating. So it's 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 not an easy job to do, and and there's a lot of pressures that happen. I've sat in the department trial room once or twice. Oh, it's not something easy to just sit through. Uh, and then you wonder and you, you think, what's going to happen? You know, am I going to lose my job? You know, am I going to then be prosecuted elsewhere? You know, all those things go through your mind and it's not easy. I'm curious because you're also a minister. So through your ministry, do you find um, these offices? having to deal with a greater amount of stress, do they come to you uh, for counseling, for ministry? Yeah, we can, um, a lot do. Uh, we also I, I, uh, was co-founder with um, Michael Hammer, the Norm Hammer Foundation about seven years ago. We co-founded um, the, the Addies program. So we have uh, 911 Addies International which is a, a counseling service that's available to first responders and we're set up in their areas. And, and what we do is we have a, um, we have a help uh, line number that people, a first responder can call. It's not associated with their uh, counties or cities or departments that they work for, but they can make that phone call and uh, confidentially. And then they can be set up with a, uh, a trauma trained counselor that's culturally competent with first responders and understands their issues. And so it's been an amazing program. Uh, we're, we're serving more and more. And, and obviously with the, with the uh, anti-police sentiment that's out there, but also the pandemic and just these other incredible pressures that are on our first responders, you know, we're, we're glad to be doing that service because we are helping an awful lot of folks. Um, it started off here in, on the on the west coast and the central coast, and we began serving over 600 first responders a year for wow. issues that that deal with trauma that that comes upon them. And now we're going out, we're branching out uh, throughout the, the the country, and and we're setting up chapters in a lot of different areas. And it's been you know it's it's for such a time as this. You know, it's it's, it's something that. That, um, that offers, you know, although there's sector counseling, we also have the spiritual care, and I get involved in a lot of that as well. But it's been it's been a time where you know our first responders really need our support. It's also a neat way for the communities to to support the program because that's how we that's how that's what we do. We raise money through the community, and 
And, um, you know, there's, there still is an awful lot of, of folks that, that want to help our first responders. They're not sure how, but, um, but this is, this is one of those ways. You, you can check that program out at, at uh, 911aei.org. That's our website and learn more about it. And if, it's, you know, if you're interested in starting a chapter in your area, then we'll, we'll reach out to you. But That's 911aei. Yeah, 911-AEI, the name of the organization is 911-AT-EASE International. All right, so do you have it hooked up to your, your own personal webpage, which is your name, Sergeant Mike McGrew? Uh, no, I'm I'm not sure. I'd have to. <laughs> it's a good question. I, I think, I believe I do, yes. But if you go to SergeantMikeMcGrew.com, uh, that that covers a lot of, it, it does have it does have a link to 911-AEI, so it'll link over because uh, that's, that's, that's the link I have on the show page. Because um, I got notified that you were going to be on here like about half an hour before we went on air, so I had to quickly throw okay. up your name, your book, A Higher Call, as well as your website, yeah. so people can click on that and also learn more about nine one one aei dot org. Um, right. You know, when I retired, there was no such thing as PTSD. No one even knew what the heck that was. You know. Uh, so you just you walked away and whatever happened to you happened to you. Now we're learning a lot more about what the stress of the job does. We're recognizing PTSD. Uh, we're recognizing, you know, people have seen some really bad things that the normal civilian doesn't. So they do need something like what you offer, which is really important. Yeah, it is. You know, when I came on, and so I retired four years ago after a 31-year career. And when I re- when I came on the department 35 years ago, uh, a lot of the Vietnam veterans were the um, senior officers, and, and I feel like they paid the price in post-traumatic stress. Um, that, it, but you know, the the culture was, was set up. Um, it wasn't set up very well. It was, it was hey, you're getting, you got a job, you know, you're getting a paycheck. It's a tough job, so just go out there and suck it up. And you do, you know, until you get to that place where you can't. Because trauma is something, especially with first responders, they see it, they deal with it daily, and, and it gets layered on a person. You know, to go out and to see some of the really horrible things that we have to deal with. I, I know, and you know this too, and it's, it's the, there's days that we did that job because we didn't want anybody else to have to do what we were doing at that very moment you know and 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 those are things you can't really um talk about uh, at home you don't bring it home a lot of times and and, uh or you don't talk to your neighbors about it it's just it starts to build up and then isolation starts to happen and then trauma can just be deadly the the culture that we had set up before led us into um, a situation where law enforcement had you know extremely high suicide rate very high divorce rate, alcoholism, just all the things that uh, were the fruits of trauma and, and stress that hadn't been dealt with. And, you know, people go, oh, yeah, you know, cops, they, they, all, they all get divorced. Well, they think that's like what's supposed to happen. But really what caused that was the trauma. <laughs> it was them putting themselves out there and, and harm's way and, and shouldering, you know, just some really emotional events for other people. And, and, and so at the end of my career, 
I thought of and I was no stranger to it. I lost two marriages. But um you know, faith was a big shift for me, uh, about twenty years into my career. But uh but but I uh my youngest son um had been diagnosed with uh, bone cancer and and when uh when he was he lost his leg and uh, we had to go through chemotherapy and uh, we spent about two hundred days a year in the hospital. But but the cancer came back three times. He fought it for six years, and and then he, um, when he was 18 years old, he actually uh, committed suicide. That's how it ended. And at that point, I needed to to go out and I needed to get, I needed to reach out and get help. And so I did. And um, you know, when I the one of the people that I saw, I I, I came in with not only losing a child and the grief of that, but I also I also brought with me about 20 years worth of police work, you know, that I that I poured out on this on this person, and they weren't ready to handle it. You know, there's there's circles that you know, they're they're there, they're good at some things, but not a lot of them can really understand what first responders have to go through. Nor can they even you know begin to try to process the things that we're trying to deal with. So mm-hmm. it was really important to me that you know that that we would start to get uh, culturally competent. Uh, therapist there because if you go to your insurance, that's you know, no guarantees you're going to get the right person. You get a lot of bureaucracy and red tape and all. If you go to an employee assistance program, a lot of fears um, that people, you know, confidentiality and, and things that they're worried about. And so that's why the system that we set up, the, the program that we set up, this works so well and so re- well received by the first responders because they know that they can make that confidential call and then they know that they can be. In the, uh, in the in the office of somebody who will be able to deal with the issues that they're doing, and we serve the families as well. So, um, well, but, not only you know, that, is, it, well, I, I just wanted to point out not only that, depending on what department you work for, there's a stigmatism for you seeking out help because you're having emotional problems because of your job, your marriage, your family, whatever other influences. So if you end up in what we call the rubber gun squad, there's no chance of you getting transferred to a unit you want to get transferred to, no chance of promotion. You end up locked in whatever position you are. That follows you throughout the rest of your career, and you've got this thing hanging over you where all the other officers no longer look at you the same way. And so there's, there is a heavy burden. You're having a hard time, but if you dare speak up, it's going to get worse. So that's why something like you would do, something that's outside of the department, something that they can feel safe and secure in and know that it's confidential is so important. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why it, that's why it works because all those things you just listed, they're they're real fears. They're they're the barriers that keep people from getting help. And, you know, my, my prayer has been is that this program helps change the conversation as well amongst first responders that you know, you, you start to get some of the senior officers that are saying, hey, you know what, there is a value in going and getting help. And, and when people realize that trauma um, injuries, are, they're a brain injury. They're something that, that can be, you know, healed, you know, and and uh, you don't just have to live with it and and and, and try to, you know, find negative outlets to, to deal with it. So it's it's just been a really... Uh, it's been a really rewarding program to be a part of, and, and, I'm, and I'm just so glad that 
the conversation is changing, you know. We still got a lot of work to do, but um, but it is changing. I think the military started to address that. Um, you, when I saw uh, officers who had been combat veterans in Iraq or Afghanistan coming out, and, and they, they knew. They knew about uh, trauma. They knew about post-traumatic stress. And, and so the conversation was there, you know. Not that it was always dealt with the right way, but um, but at least but at least it's happening. And so so that's what we want to do. If if you saw your partner with a broken arm, you wouldn't just look at your partner and do nothing. You you, t- you take your partner and say, hey, let's go get that fixed. And and so that's what we want to see with um, with uh, first responders that that they're looking out for each other as well, and that there's a safe place for them to, to come get that treatment. Well, you do a fantastic job with that. And, you know, your ministry reaches out to so many, so many good people. You know, one of the things I had, um, a neighbor of mine, we were doing a Back to Blue rally back in August, and she was part of a counter Black Lives Matter rally. And, you know, we're friends, even though we're on the opposite side of the political spectrum. So she brought the leader of her rally over to talk to me. Like, well, hey, you want to talk? And they go, well, I said to them, what are you looking for? He goes, I'm looking for them to be more community-oriented. And I said, well, let me ask you this. Do you look out for your neighbors or are you just looking out for yourself? I mean, when something happens down your street, do you go out and see what's going on, see if you can lend a hand, or do you dial 911 to tell police something's going on, someone needs help? No. I said, why not? You want us to come into your community, but you've got to talk to us and let us know what you want, what you need, unless you open that dialogue. You can stand there and protest all you want, but unless you sit down with those in charge of that department and say, listen, we need X, Y, Z in our neighborhood because this stuff is happening. You don't tell us we're not going to be able to be mind readers until something really bad happens. And then if you don't help us solve the problem, what are you protesting? And, you know, all of a sudden from that conversation, they started a program where they worked with the department, the local police department there and said, well, this is what we see going on. We started the dialogue, but it has to be out there. It's not us versus them. You know that. We're out there to help. That's why we became you know, law enforcement, firefighters, emergency service. We, we want to help, but unless you tell us where you need that help, you got our hands tied, right? Absolutely. You, you have to work with your community, and the community needs to work with the law enforcement. And it's a two-way street. And, and uh, you know, the community policing philosophy is, is something that uh, really came about in the, in the 90s. You know, I think it's, there's a lot of a lot of that going on throughout law enforcement, but, you know, it became a philosophy on how to police back in the nineties. And, and they saw, I saw the, the positive effect that it had and, and just the trust that begins to happen between the community and the law enforcement that serves that community. And, 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 you know, uh, we're, we're there to be there for the, for, for the folks who live in, in those neighborhoods that we patrol. We're, we're we're willing to give our lives down for those folks, and you know, it, uh, I think when people begin to see you and understand you, then there's a lot of the, it's like, you know, this some of the perceptions start to get removed, and 
and I and I've just seen how it it helped clean up neighborhoods. And if you had a drug house instead of just running and you know picking off a drug dealer here or there outside and and just going back there basically fishing every day and and catching a, a drug dealer, he really started to address it in different ways where maybe maybe you start having having to deal with the landlord, you know, the landlord that's allowing this to happen and and, and uh, code violations and and there's just there's just all different avenues that you can take to to a particular uh, crime neighborhood because I don't think any neighborhood's a bad neighborhood. Uh, it's always ten percent you know, uh, that might be in there that turns it into this bad neighborhood. And it's the thugs that stand on the, on the street corner and on the bully people or whatever it is. But you know, ninety percent of the folks that live there they want to they want to be safe. They want to be, um, but they're afraid to come out. You know, they're afraid because of those thugs. And so, so it it, it, it takes leadership. It takes um, um, that trust to happen and that. Mm-hmm just that relationship to happen, even at the political levels with the, the council, you know, city council or county supervisor, whoever is in charge of something, they need to understand the importance of, of making, of bridging uh, uh, law enforcement with their community and support that well, and be supportive. Of it. But you can't just, you can't just defund them and think that's going to happen, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> Absolutely not. Oh, unless you're in Portland, Seattle, or something like that. Anyway, Dr. McGrew, people can find you at your website, which is, which is your name, if I can say that straight. Starts MikeMcGrew.com. Thank you, sir, for the hard work you do, and God bless you. Yeah, God bless you. Thank you for having me. Okay. MikeMcGrew.com and his book, A Higher Call. Um, Curtis, we've got a caller there on the line. I don't know who this individual is. But I do see one of our guests, Troy, is with us. Troy, good afternoon, Troy Anderson. How are you today? Hi, uh, Annie. Uh, I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing fine. I was reading your book. I got it uh, about two and a half days ago, so I was speed reading. And, oh, my goodness, holy cow, you're fantastic. I mean, this is a book that people really have to pick up and start reading because so much of it is so relevant today. Uh, you've written it with Colonel David J. Giamona. I hope I said it, his last name correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Military Guide to Armageddon, Battle-Tested Strategies to Prepare Your Life and Soul for the End Times. What a mouthful. Well, th- thank you very much, Annie. That's, uh, that's very encouraging. Greatly appreciate that. Well, I'm, I'm, let me just switch my screens here uh, so I can get your book up on the – because we are up on Facebook Live, and it's going to be going up on YouTube and a couple other places. What I just waved in front of the camera are the notes that I have that I printed off of my computer, and it's 14 pages, and it's not the entire book. I just went only so far on my notes because I want people to buy the book to find out <laughs> – your final solution. Uh, so half an hour is not going to make it. Holy Lord. Um, people don't realize that a lot of stuff that we see today, there's a purpose behind it. And what you and Colonel David did is basically look at how the military attacks problems, look how they break it down and what their checklist is, and then 
take that and use it in a spiritual way through Christianity. What made the two of you come up with that idea? Yeah, so um, after my last book came out in uh, early 2018, the Colonel Giamona, he's a, you know, a chaplain in the Army for three decades, he, he got a hold of me out of the blue, and he said that he'd written a, a book called The Making of a Warrior, and he had no idea how to get it published, and so he wanted me to help, help him you know, write it, edit it, and, and get it published. And when he called me, it, it, it's, the thought struck me. I knew about these polls that show that about 70 to 80% of Americans highly respect the military. It's far above than any other profession, like pastors are like 50%, and, you know, Congress is like, you know, 30%, and the media is like 10%. And, uh, and so I thought, if America will listen to anybody about the dangers we're facing, about what's really happening, they'll listen to a U.S. Army chaplain and colonel, and so I agreed to help him write this book. And he actually told me in about uh, like summer of 2018 that God told him by the time this book comes out, it will be a completely different world. And, uh, and this is you know, long before the COVID-19 pandemic and all everything we've seen happen you know, re- recently. So that, that was sort of the, the genesis of, of this book. Well, you know, uh, in the intro, um, you turn around, you and the colonel – dedicate the book and i always find it interesting to see who the authors dedicate the book to because it tells me a lot about the individual because you get some of them that say oh i i dedicate this book to uh my next door neighbor or my editor or my publisher blah 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 or some other famous person uh but you turned around and david did the very same thing you dedicated it first to your wives and to your family and then everyone else is at the bottom of the list. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, especially I think I think I can speak on his behalf too. That you know, our, our wives and our families have played gigantic roles in all this stuff. The, you know, I've had three books came out. They all became number one bestsellers. Now we've launched uh, Battle Ready Ministries to help you know awaken and prepare the church. And if, if my wife wasn't encouraging and inspiring us, uh, you know, it never would have happened. And so, yeah, they played a huge role. And we, all, we also dedicated the, the book to God. You know, my, my wife, uh, several years ago, she said, why don't you start keeping a journal of things that seem miraculous in nature in our lives? And so every time we pray, I'd write down, and this seems like a miracle. It seems like God intervened here. And now that, that log of, like, supernatural phenomena has grown to, like, 140 pages. So, you know, if you, if you keep, keep a journal like that, it's a big faith builder because it shows you that, you know, God intervenes in our lives constantly you know i i've always said that and matter of fact um i i i run a tea party here in locally and someone had just moved into the uh the area and wanted to become involved so i met the individual for lunch and he seemed to be struggling uh trying to get his head around you know what's going on today and i felt he needed some sort of a direction and I started to talk about faith to him. And I said, you know, sometimes you've got to just stop and listen and then just let your ears just open up. Let your heart, your ears open up and you're going to hear his voice. There's going to be something that happens. Someone walks into your life, something happens where it's a sign of the hand of God. And I, I told him that even something simple as walking outside and feeling the sun on your face, you got to say there is a higher power that creates this. 
And he's kind of like looking at me like I'm crazy. And I says, no, I was talking on the phone one day. It was shortly after my father had passed away. And it was around Christmas time. And I've got cats in the house, and they're always getting into something. And I walked past the dining room table where my father's picture was. And I just leaned a finger down and kissed it as I continued my conversation. And then I hear a crash. I'm going, oh, great. What did the cats get into now? All right. So I go, hang on a second. I turn around to the person I'm talking to the phone. I go in. The whole closet was open. It's our coat closet. And there's a box on the floor. And I'm looking at this. I'm going, I've never seen that box before. I pick it up. It's got a Christmas ornament in it and a little card that had a prayer in it. The Christmas ornament said, and remember, this is just before Christmas. And I had just put the Christmas tree up. And the ornament said, don't cry for me. I'm spending Christmas with Jesus. Wow. And God talking. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. but when my mom died, uh, this was about 15 years ago, I, I spoke at a funeral, and I, I gave a eulogy, and uh, a, a whole bunch of people were going to give eulogies, and um, but the, apparently whatever I said was, was so booming that everybody started crying, and then no, nobody else came up and spoke, and as I walked off the stage, I felt my mom walk up to me and give me a hug. I could smell her perfume, and it, it just made me tear up because I, I actually felt her, like, hug me. It was like this amazing love, you know, so I knew she was in heaven and everything was okay, you know. So, was, yeah, just the, the little things in life, you know, are incredible. Yeah, it, it's like a, I had a medical emergency um, just the other day with my husband, and um, I, I was so overwhelmed at one point that I sat in my chair in the living room. I put my head in my hands. I was getting ready just to ball my head off. And instead, I said a silent prayer. Just guide me, God. Just just please give me a hand here and just show me what I need to do. Show me what has to be done. And my mom, who recently had a stroke and has now moved in with me, um, is looking at me. And it's the first time she saw me at that, near the breaking point. And I just said my little prayer. I felt myself calm down. And I go to stand up, and mom was looking at me like, oh, you're Okay. And the phone rang, and it was the doctor. And I turned around to the doctor. I said, I was just praying to God to give me a little helping hand here, and you called. Talk about God hearing and answering your prayers. Uh, yeah, that's amazing. The Lord is very good. Well, now let's get back to the book, because um, when I was reading through the book and going, all right, fine, you give passages of the Bible, so you, you give examples how God is telling us that we are in a war of good versus evil. We are definitely in a war, and the war is starting to come to a head. But we've been saying that for eons. Um, we've always said, well, the end is near, the end is near, the end is near. But in the book, you walk us through um, signs that are saying, hey, listen, this is what, this is what we need to have, see happen. And then you come to a point in the book where you actually start to point out where these things have already occurred, the things that are in Revelations that tell us what to look for and when we should know that we're, it, it's now, it's happening now. Yeah, so for, for the last decade, I, I've investigated this question. You know, I'm, I'm an investigative journalist, so I, and 
I, I went to this prophecy conference back in 2009. I was covering it for the LA Daily News. And uh, my, my other co-author, Paul McGuire, he said, the world is undergoing the greatest transformation since the Tower of Babel, a coming global government, cashless society, and universal religion. And when he said that, it just struck me. I, I sort of flashed back when I was a kid. I read The Late Great Planet Earth. And it sort of reignite this interest in Bible prophecy. So I, I spent the last decade investigating, Is are we really moving into what the Bible talks about, the, the end times? I've done over 200 interviews with, you know, a who's who of major faith leaders. You know, B- Billy Graham told me several years ago, signs of the end of the age are converging for the first time since Jesus made those predictions. And then, uh, you know, Hal Lindsey, Tim LaHaye, Greg Laurie, Rabbi Jonathan Kahn, just, you know, dozens and dozens. They all, they all say the same kind of thing. And then I interviewed experts at, at existential risk institutes at Oxford and Princeton and MIT, Noam Chomsky, and they, they believe there's great dangers. Like Oxford releases this annual report on the great top 10 dangers facing humanity. And they say things like, you know, of course, you know, n- nuclear war or maybe artificial intelligence that goes haywire, uh, you know, an asteroid strikes us. But they also talk about a global totalitarian government. And so... There's, and then there's a recent LifeWay poll that came out that said, you know, this just, you know, uh, several months ago said nine in ten pastors now see signs of the end times and, and current events. So the Bible tells us only God knows when this is all going to happen. Only the Father knows. We, we don't know. But Jesus did tell us to look for the signs. And so in the book, we talk about all the different signs that are happening. You know, of course, you know, an increase in, in great disasters, natural disasters, there's, there's recent reports coming out saying there's been an increase in, you know, disasters and the in, in intensity of them in, in recent years. And then for the first time in history, we now have all the technologies in place, you know, the surveillance state, artificial intelligence, electronic banking, microchip implants. So you, so you could actually have this mark of the beast system where you can't buy or sell that the book of Revelation talks about. And then just the, the moral free fall of society, you know, this, the, the apostasy, the you know, I think on page uh, 199, you know, we talk about the, the deception. The Bible talks about a great deception. You know, we're living in un, unprecedented times of deception, godlessness, you know, mockery of, of the faith, um, you know, th- things like that. So, yeah, the, the book goes through a lot of the different signs. So it helps, helps sort of, you know, lay out in a simple fashion, you know, why it seems that, you know, we may very, very well be moving into this, this period of time. Yeah, um there is you have a checklist on the things to look for and i thought i had printed it out and i don't have it it's just this is stupid anyway you talk about the mark of the beast and that's really funny because um when covid broke out there was a meatpacking factory the employees eventually sued the owners because they had them wear these devices that if they got within certain distance of their fellow employee it's going to ring an alarm to let them know, oh, wait a minute, you're not safe distancing. And because the meatpacking industry was having the COVID virus you know, spread so fast, so they decided that you know, safe, if that's not the start of the mark of the beast. And then you hear about um, now implanting uh, a chip in you so that you just use your finger for your credit card. All these things are happening now. But when you, you point back that it it's not just everything happening now, it's what has happened already in the past, and you point to the rise of the rebirth of Israel happening in one day, which was predicted in the Bible, that within one day, Israel would be reborn. 
Yeah, the the, re, the rebirth of Israel in 1948 is the you know considered the, the the super sign of end times, and and essentially you know what the Bible tells us is that we, we've been in sort of the countdown ever since then, and and it's in that time period that weapons of mass destruction have been created, and we've seen this this you know the move towards some kind of global system you know politically and economically and all these technologies. So, yeah, the Bible, you know, the, the, the mainstream interpretation of the Bible prophecies, that, that was the, the, the super sign because the Jews were, were dispersed all over the world for 2,000 years. And, you know, the book of Ezekiel talks about, you know, the rebirth of, of God's people in, in one day, and that's what, that's what happened in, in 1948. So there's, if, if you study Bible prophecy, you, you, you'll soon discover, you know, because I've read hundreds and hundreds of books on, on, on this topic, you'll soon discover that all these prophecies about Jesus' first coming in the Old Testament were, were all fulfilled to the letter. And, and now we're seeing many of the prophecies of the second coming and, and as we move into that time being fulfilled too. So it's just, that's one of the greatest proofs that the Bible is true is, is all these prophecies are coming true. About a third of the Bible is prophetic in nature and only God could foresee all this. And then the Holy Spirit inspire all these, you know, dozens and dozens of writers over thousands of years to, you know, put this all in the Bible. So the Bible is a, you know, it's just an amazing book. Yeah, it's, it's- it's funny because you say, not funny, it's sad actually, that you say in the book that um, Christians have always faced persecution. Christians and Jews have always faced some form of persecution. But never in the history of mankind have so many Christians at one time been persecuted in one way or another. And you give you know examples out of the Bible where we are warned that this is going to happen. And I've got to tell you, on my own website, my webpage, I've had this up for quite a long time. It's a passage from Matthew 5, 11 through 12, and it reads, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And basically, in your book, you are repeating passages similar to this throughout the Bible, saying, hey, listen, all right, it's okay. We know something bad is going to happen, but we want to equip you, and which, which this book does. It's a handbook to equip individuals as well as groups of people to become warriors in Christ, to protect themselves, the fellow man, from the coming evil. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's what we what we felt that God wanted us to write this book is to, you know, help help take in the military they have what's called the making of a warrior process where they sort of they, they, you know take a, a civilian turn them into a soldier and so the what the colonel did is you know he's got over three decades of experience in the military and in fact at like you know at, at war college they they study the Bible you know, to learn how to fight, how, how to fight war. Soldiers, you know, and, and military leadership study the Bible, King David, the, the battles. You know, the Bible talks about putting on the full armor of God, the sword of the spirit, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, uh, you know, the belt of truth. And, uh, and you know, the, the Bible talks about how the angels are organized in a military fashion. The, the Old Testament actually describes God as a Lord God of armies. And so, so the book takes you through this, this making of a warrior process to transform you from, you know, just sort of a regular Christian into a, a warrior of God who can, you know, be, be successful and win in spiritual battles, do the Lord's work. You know, I, I believe that as more and more people recognize what's really happening, as, as people come to the conclusion that this stuff really is happening, Jesus is returning, 
there's going to be hundreds of millions of people that are going to turn to turn to God in the months and years ahead. And so I, I believe God's sort of built, He's raising up an army to to do the work to spread the gospel, spread the good news, and and bring in this, this great harvest that the the Bible talks about will occur as we move into this uh, period of time. Yeah, and <laughs> excuse me, I think I'm coming down with a cold, so I apologize. Oh, bless you. Um, now I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> Uh, but uh, we're seeing a lot of evil coming into this world. Mm-hmm. Um, we where government is shutting down uh, churches uh, where you're not because of COVID. They use that as an excuse. It's always an excuse. Um, we find ourselves where you're being mocked if you do express any faith um, by the Hollywood elite or the political elite. Um, I had a member of our Tea Party go into court one day and the case was dismissed and she had the audacity in front of the judge saying oh thank god she was chastised by this judge and threatened with a fine because she mentioned the name of god in the courtroom and he goes there is separation of church and state you're not allowed to mention that in the courtroom excuse me but don't we where to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, on a Bible? I, they're doing yeah. anything and everything to take us away from our faith. Yeah, when, when I was a reporter at the LA Daily News, I, I covered the County Board of Supervisors. This is back in like 2004. Uh, the ACLU uh, sought to remove the cross, the Christian cross, from the LA County seal. And uh, so I ended up writing hundreds of stories about that, and ultimately they were successful, and they got the cross off the county seal. And then after that, there was like a, a wave across the country, getting rid of the Ten Commandment plaques and crosses and anything religious, and and just sort of this real push to you know, remove God from the public square, from government, from schools, from everywhere. And and I remember I I, I talked to an attorney at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, or or uh, the Court of Appeals in Pasadena, as, as they were losing the case. Of, he was attorney for the Thomas More Center. And I asked him, I go, this is like, like probably like 2005, I go, where, where is this all heading? He goes, Troy, it will eventually all end in violence. And I thought, Man, violence, what does that mean? And, and it'll, you know, flash forward 15 years, now we're seeing so much, you know, division in our country and hatred and, and uh, you know, just like Open Doors just released a report that said that persecution of Christians around the world is up 60% just in one year. And there's terrible things happening to Christians around the world, being crucified, killed, tortured, losing their jobs, all kinds of things. And now there's there's concern that we're seeing more, you know, a, a milder version, but, you know, oppression and censorship and loss of religious freedoms happening here. And there's concern about how far this is going to go here, here in America. And, and the Bible tells us this, this would all happen. So as we move into this time, that, that's why we wrote this book, is to help prepare people. You know, that God gives us supernatural courage and boldness. He promises to protect us and take us through this. So this book, you know, will teach you how to walk in the supernatural power, protection, and provision of the Holy Spirit, which is going to be crucial, you know, as we move into this, uh, you know, move ahead here. Well, you also, you're talking in the book, and you teach people how to also endure. Because it, it's going to be easy to turn around and say, well, you know, uh, this is just too painful, so I'm just going to go along to get along. But you warn about doing that. You teach people how to endure, how to persevere, because there are going to be very, very hard times that will come up. And there are people, 
be people who buckle under. But you're also saying, this is how you don't buckle under. This is how, and this is why you don't buckle under. You explain to them, this is temporary. Your your body here, your mortal soul, your your body is here. It's mortal. Your soul is immortal. So look at what you gain if you stay the course. Yeah, that, that, that's a very important point. Uh, you know, the temptation as as persecution increases for, for people to you know give up on Christianity, and you know, but the, the Bible warns that uh, if you do you deny Jesus, He'll deny you before the Father. So I mean, you you know, if if you if you go down that road, and especially if you if you take the mark of the beast, whatever it ends up being, you know, the the Bible Book of Revelation warns if you actually take it and you worship the the Antichrist that you will be, you know, thrown into the lake of fire one day. And so, you know, we may endure some difficulties. And plus there's also, you know, the, many people believe there'll be the rapture at the beginning of the tribulation. Others believe it'll be maybe the middle of the tribulation. So, you know, it's, it's, no, nobody knows for sure until it actually happens. Uh, so, you know, I, I just encourage people, stay strong in the faith, draw close to the Lord. He'll, he'll take us through this. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, uh, we may experience some difficulties, but, you know, he promised us an eternal home in heaven, you know, a mansion he's prepared for us and, you know, wonders beyond anything we can imagine, uh, uh, you know, for, for eternity. So there's, there's a lot at stake here. Yeah. And now in the book, as I said, you have a checklist of all the different signs to look for. And what is really eerie is that now in Saudi Arabia, they are building the city of Neom. And that's one of the main things that tells you that the end is imminent. It may be 50 years down the road, but we're getting to that point right now. And the city is going to be run by mostly robotics, which is, again, predicted in the Bible. But what is even really most uh, discerning is that uh, they're attempting to build the third temple. And they have a committee in place in Israel that is actively looking to get the permits to push forward the project to rebuild the third temple within the next 10 to 20 years. That, that I think between those two things, that's the final nail in the coffin. Yeah, the, the Bible says that the third temple will be rebuilt, and at the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist will enter it and declare himself to be God. I, I interviewed a, a general here a couple of years ago who told me that uh, they, they have, you know, they've raised $2 billion. They have set aside to, to build the temple. Supposedly, they 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 have all this, the, the stones they need. They have them in warehouses. They have pretty much everything they'll need to rebuild the temple. They're just sort of waiting for the, you know, the right opportunity for this to proceed. Uh, and then, and then our, our first book I wrote was called the Babylon Code, and explored this this mystery, what's considered the, one of the Bible's greatest mysteries, called Mystery Babylon and Babylon the Great in Revelation 17 and 18, and it dates back to you know Nimrod and, and Genesis, you know built the Tower of Babel, and uh, the sort of the first attempt at a utopian world system, and you know God, you know confused the languages of humanity and people scattered around the world, formed nation states, and then. Then Babylon played a central role in the books of the prophets and then reemerges in Revelation as mystery Babylon. So Bible scholars are puzzled over what is what did the Apostle John mean by, you know, mystery Babylon? So so now you have this this city of Neom, which is going to be like a like you said, like an artificial intelligence kind of a city out in the desert in Saudi Arabia that they're they're in the process of 
of buildings. So could that be, you know, part of this Babylon system? You know, there, there's there's descriptions in the book of Revelation talking about the image of the beast and, and things that seem to re- reference like, you know, holograms or artificial intelligence and technologies. You know, Prophet Daniel told us there would be a, an explosion in knowledge as we move into the last days, and we've still, certainly seen that happen. So, yeah, th- those two prophecies are, you know, the, the Babylon, the mystery Babylon system, sort of this, this global, you know, world system that arises that the Antichrist presides over, and then the rebuilding the third temple, those are, you know, we're seeing the move towards those things now. Now, uh, the one thing I didn't see, you mentioned Jezebel uh, in one part of the book. I didn't see you concentrate on her. I think that's a very important part also that we should see, the rise of the Jezebel spirit and how prolific it is now. I mean, just look at the craziness in our government. And I got to tell you, uh, there was at one point I saw it and I faced the Jezebel spirit one-on-one, and I gave it the finger. <laughs> I mean, uh, we were picking up a hospital bed for my mother, and this one woman just kept on getting in the middle of everything, and she was videotaping us on her cell phone, looking to see if we were going to hit a car in the parking lot or something. This woman just had pure evil that emanated out of her to the point where her face looked distorted to me. And as we were leaving, I had to flick off the finger to the Jezebel spirit. But we really do have to be on the lookout for Satan's servants. Yeah, I mean, the Bible tells us that there's a, there's a great spiritual battle going on in the background between the forces of God, you know, the angels, and the forces of Satan, the demons, essentially. And and so, and the Bible also tells us there's going to be an exponential increase in demonic activity and, and evil as we move into the end times, and we're, we're seeing that now. Uh, you know, the Bible says that, you know, the demons can possess people and, and oppress people. And it also says that these, these you know, these beings in the, in the spiritual realm, they can, they can you know, suggest to us, suggest things to us and influence us. And it even says that they can appear in, in, in bodily form in, in some cases. So so the, the Bible talks a lot about this. Jesus cast out demons a lot. And so, you know, the Jezebel spirit, this sort of rebellious kind of, kind of spirit, the uh, sorcery, the magic, I mean, you know, with, with the Harry Potter and, and all the different Hollywood movies and all this stuff, you know, we, we have several generations now sort of been indoctrinated and, and steeped and enticed into the occult and that kind of thing. And our, our you know, my first couple of books went into the, you know, the different secret societies that are very powerful and influential in the background of males or occult in nature. So, yeah, we're, we're seeing the, the Jezebel spirit, Mystery Babylon, this increase in, you know, cult and sorcery. It's, it's very, very prevalent today. Well, it has been a pleasure speaking with you. I'm sorry that the colonel did not join us. He was supposed to be with us. So if you do speak with him, you know, tell him we missed him. We welcome him back on the show at any time. And there's a link to your book, The Military Guide to Armageddon, on our show page. So as people listen to the podcast in the archives, they can click on it. I want to thank you, Troy, for joining us. And as I said, this book is going to be the handbook of every American uh, that wants to know more about it. Thank you very much. It's a great honor to be on your show. God bless you. It has a real pleasure. God bless. All right. Uh, we have our next guest in up on the line from the Heritage Foundation, and he's probably going, what the heck nutcase did I just roll into? <laughs> 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 I want to welcome Heritage, Joseph Laconte. Good afternoon, Joseph. How are you today? I'm doing terrific. It's great to be with you. And can I call you Annie? Yes, you can. I'm known as Annie. That's terrific. You can call me Joe or Joseph, Annie, whatever you like. 
Or my grandmother would say, Annucci, he's a good Italian boy. You're being nice to him. <laughs> brava, brava, brava. Eccolo. Okay. I mean, um, you are, excuse me, you're with the Head Heritage Foundation. You're um, the director of the uh, B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies and the AWC Family Foundation Fellow. I managed to say that without screwing it up too badly. How do you like that? Yeah, wonderfully done. <laughs> it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit wordy. You're right. <laughs> Question. You know, we now have yeah. President Biden undoing all the good works that were done prior to him. Um, is it too late? Because you wrote about American renewal, you know, uh, talking about Ronald Reagan and the spirit he brought to us. Is it too late? Has the path been reversed or can we look forward to a possible renewal of the American spirit? Well, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's a good question to ask as an historian and also as a person of faith. I, I, I don't like the word inevitable or inevitability in most cases. In other words, the potential for renewal in the American system is, is immense. And I, Ronald Reagan's presidency is a great example of that, given where the country was. And I'm old enough to remember where it was in 1979, 1980. Just think about all the cultural and political forces against Reagan, where the assumption was the Soviet Union was here to stay and that American democracy and capitalism was pretty much on its back. And we're going to have to accommodate to the Soviet system. We're going to become more like them. They're going to become more like us. Uh, get used to a stagnant uh, economy, more or less. <laughs> Ronald Reagan comes on the scene with a, with a great team. And then, of course, Margaret Thatcher as well and Pope John Paul II. And they push back against the most regressive, I would say, uh, leftist uh, destructive forces in their own societies and their own cultures. And it was an amazing turnaround throughout the 1980s. And then, of course, the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. No one saw that coming in 1979. So the potential for renewal is, is immense, particularly within the American system. Excuse me. Well, we do have listeners in there that go that far back. Matter of fact, in 1978, I owned my first business. So that goes to say where I did not vote for Jimmy Carter. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it, it, was, it was a very tough world. And I it see was. a lot of similarity uh, to what was going on under Jimmy Carter, to what we're seeing today, but it's actually now on steroids. Um, yeah. I had to explain that to my mom. What do you mean on steroids? And it's just when someone is on steroids, they feel like they have a strength that is super, but it also affects them mentally. And yeah. <laughs> I said, yeah. this is now yeah. steroids. Uh, but if you compare Ronald Reagan to any other Republican uh, or, or conservative president we've had in the past, I would say he's more akin to the ideals of George Washington. Yeah, I actually like your comparison. I, it's hard to think of a president over the last hundred years who had a, a deeper commitment to the principles of the Constitution of the Declaration of Independence and, and the capacity to speak about that intelligently, persuasively, eloquently, in a way that m most Americans could grasp and understand and agree with. We haven't had many political leaders like that, let's be frank, uh, over the last few decades. Reagan really stood out, and his love of country, his patriotism, his absolute conviction that the American founding, with all the problems and faults and, and inconsistencies and contradictions, we're all aware of them, but the American founding was a unique historical uh, event, 
and that America really was, in the words of Abraham Lincoln, the last best hope of Earth. That is vintage Reagan, isn't it? And that, uh, that's his connection to Washington. I, I, I think you're right. Well, I have to admit, there are times I did not agree with Ronald Reagan when he made that immigration goof. Um, yeah. There was a couple of yeah. things that he did. He wasn't a perfect president, but if anyone yeah, was yeah. president, it was him. But he was able to always do stuff with class, style, yes. and above yes. all, humor. And no, yes, he right. never stopped showing American exceptionalism. It was always yes. America. Like I yeah. said, he wasn't perfect. He made his goofs. And we well, can forgive them because we can get past them. But yes. what we have today, yeah. now, how would you then compare his style to Trump? <laughs> Trump did a lot of <laughs> great moves. It just, well, that's, that's a tough question. And I'm, I'm speaking now on my own behalf. I'm not speaking for the Heritage Foundation as I, uh, anything I might say here in comparison between Reagan and Trump. If you think about it, Donald Trump, I, I think, even in some ways presented himself as the anti-Reagan. I don't necessarily mean in all of his policies, but certainly in his style, his approach, um, uh, not, not being a, 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 a known conservative or Republican uh, right into the nomination and beyond. And so in many ways, he was kind of the anti-Reagan. Certainly uh, doesn't have, didn't have Reagan's rhetorical ability and gifts. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, okay, we had a Ronald Reagan who in his second term won 49 out of 50 states, an electoral landslide. We've got a Donald Trump who portrayed himself as the anti-Reagan, and we have what we have. So I would just encourage people, to, what, what do we need now? Uh, I, I'm often accused of being too nostalgic, uh, filled with Reagan bromides. People who defend Reagan are often accused that way. But I just want to say, well, look at the results. <laughs> look at the results. And I want to say to, well, to the critics of Ronald Reagan as well, is like, well, what, what of Reagan's policies do we not like? What about his rhetorical style and character do we not like, do we think we don't need? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's right. You had an article last week in National Review titled Reagan's Fight for American Renewal Revisited. Yeah. And towards the end of it, you had a perfect paragraph to explain the difference. Um, you said, like no other political leader. Reagan united all of the major currents of modern conservatism, free market economics, individual yes. responsibility, limited government, a strong national defense, patriotism, populism, civic virtue, and faith. He made yes. American exceptionalism his lodestar, viewed mm -hmm. objectively his oratory, his natural, natural eloquence, historical awareness, and moral clarity rivals that of the greatest statement the teeth and back statesman yeah. of the last century. Reagan neither so, bullied yeah. he neither bullied the American people nor treated yeah. them as happy. Proved the very best way to move hearts and minds was to articulate a political philosophy clearly, compellingly, and with a touch of humor that could disarm mm -hmm. even toughest critics. And so that I would say is probably what Trump's biggest fault is, is that instead of being able to to unite uh, all areas of republicanism, of conservatism, um, he would turn yeah. around and think yeah. about the size of someone's hands. No, 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 no. Yeah. Try to find yeah. a way to win that individual over rather than propel yeah. them away. I would say that would be yeah. Trump's biggest fault. That is certainly a huge character flaw. Uh, the willingness to turn on people, even if they've been loyal to you. Let's put it that way and be blunt about that. The, uh, the, uh, his his uh, treatment of 
Mike Pence right at the end there uh, during the uh, January 6th uh, ride on the Capitol. His treatment of Pence, you could argue, is falls in that category. And so uh, that simply was not Reagan's character or his style. Reagan had an ability to persuade people who were in the middle. And, and Donald Trump really has no capacity to do that, it's, it seems to me. And that, that is a problem. He's unnecessarily uh, divisive. And we, we need to ask ourselves, well, how can we move forward as a country? How can conservatism move forward? Cultural conservatism, social, religious conservatism have greater sway in this country because I think it will lead to much better policies and more human flourishing. How, what kind of leadership do we need? Is it of the Trump style or is it of the Reagan style? And again, I say, well, look at the results. <laughs> at the end of the day, they seem to speak to themselves. Go ahead. I also seem to remember that he would have private conversations with Tip O'Neill in the kitchen. Yeah. And a lot of times yeah. he's able to hammer out issues. We don't see any sitting down at the kitchen table with Nancy Pelosi said, well, Nancy, let's take a look at this issue this way. <laughs> Instead, you know, it's the yeah. vitriol, and you're, you're not going to get someone yeah. to work with you if only vitriol goes. But we also understand he's a businessman. He aims yeah. high. He throws the yeah. wet spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks yeah. and whatever sticks yeah. he goes with. So yeah. his style, the businessman's style, let's throw it against yeah. the wall and whatever yeah. doesn't stay, we let go to the side and whatever sticks we work with. Right. Right. And I, I, I think this is worth asking the question, uh, uh, Annie. It's what, um, what kind of character qualities are required in our particular republic? And persuasion has to be one of them. The capacity to reach across the aisle has to be one of them. It's not winner take all. That's just not the system that we have. Now, look, I'll be the first one to uh, make the point that the radical left, the progressive left, which has found a very comfortable home now in the Democratic Party, this is a problem. It'd be a problem for Reagan. If you had Reagan in office right now, he would be a sale just as he was in 1980 as a dunce, as a washed up Hollywood actor, as a warmonger and all the rest of it. And he he was able to deal with it then and, and brush it off. But uh, the Democratic Party now is it would have been unrecognizable to a Harry Truman, to a John Kennedy, um, boy, maybe even to Bill Clinton at this stage of the game. It has become so radicalized. Let me be quick to say that as I'm you know, offering some, I hope, constructive criticism of, of, of Trump and, and his, uh, his legacy. The, the left has become unhinged, and they have found a comfortable home in the Democratic Party, and that's a problem for the country. There's no question about it. And the unfortunate thing is they now control not just our media, but our education system. So now it's a yeah. massive indoctrination of our youth yeah. where a yeah. lot of them, vast majority of them could not even tell you what the founding principles are of this nation. And yeah. as a matter of fact, they yeah. embraced the 1619 project rather than yeah. the 1628 Mayfair Compact, which, again, is something yeah. else you've written about. And we've done a couple of shows on it. Yeah, no, thank you for that point, Andy. One of, one of Reagan's, in fact, his last, his farewell address, he talked about the renewal of patriotism, but then he also t- expressed a worry that unless it was institutionalized, a healthy understanding of the America's founding, what we've achieved, unless it was institutionalized, it could slip away. And I think that fear is being realized thanks to, back to the point, the radical left through the New York Times, through the 1619 Project, through the public education system, a teaching young people to essentially hate their country. And that's not putting it too strongly. I'm an historian, and I'm, I'm, I tend to be pretty careful with my language. But that really does appear to be what at least 
a if it's not if it's not a, a majority, it's a significant minority at least and loud minority of voices uh, within the Democratic Party and certainly in the progressive movement. They are teaching young people to hate their country. That's a catastrophe for the country. And so, well, how we counter that as conservatives is a huge challenge. No question about it. Well, it's also given a rise to what you call, and I probably mispronounced this word, but I love mobocratic uh, spirit. <laughs> yeah, you got it. Mob- mobocracy. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> mobocracy. Well, I, now I can't even talk. Um, but we are allowing uh, an unruly element in our society, a minority area of our society to control the rest of us. If this is not the rise of socialism in the United States full force, I don't know what is. It is. There's no question there's a real danger here. I mean, um, Bernie Sanders didn't get the nomination, but he could have, and he came pretty close to getting a Democratic nomination. And of course, um, uh, Kamala Harris, by all appearances, uh, and it's not going to take long (laughs) to see it play out, I think she has serious socialist tendencies, if not outright card-carrying member. So we're going to see where this goes. Joe Biden is not the moderate uh, that so many in the media have, have described him as being. I mean, the, whatever the center was for the Democratic Party, it has shifted radically left. There's no question about that. From any historical vantage point, this Democratic Party is, would be unrecognizable to Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, and John Kennedy. So, yeah, socialism is on the agenda. Uh, and we're going to have to figure out how culturally, not just politically uh, on Capitol Hill, but culturally, how are we going to beat it back? Reagan had the advantage, uh, and the conservatives and the Republican Party had the advantage of, you know, the policies against the Soviet Union actually worked and helped to bring it down. And then, of course, the Democratic revolutions in 1989, clamoring for democratic free market economies, those protesters in the streets by the millions it totally discredited communism and socialism. But we have short memories, don't we, uh, Annie? Short memories. A generation later, and Bernie Sanders almost becomes the nominee uh, for the Democratic Party. Well, let me put it this way. If I were to mention the name FDR in my mother-in-law's house with the rest <laughs> of the family around, I would have been pitched out that front door, and I would have been divorced <laughs> in a heartbeat. Um, <laughs> they still talk about the Treaty of Yalta. Uh, so, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, they they lived under it. Uh, they knew yeah. what true communism is, and that's the whole problem. They these kids today are being fed the pablum, you know, of, yeah. of ideals of Marx, uh, and yes. they have not actually lived under the yoke of it to find out what the that's actual right. reality of it is. You know, I've traveled the globe and I've been in countries that had communism, yeah. and <laughs> it, it's not. Fun when you sit down thinking that you're in yes. a private club and find a soldier with a, a machine gun pointing in your face. Yeah. Uh, That's right. How did that happen? And my answer was I picked up my scotch and took a sip. <laughs> I'm going to try a little piece of scotch first. <laughs> I'm going to keep Sorry. that in mind if I find myself in a similar situation. Keep scotch at your elbow. All right, very good. Joseph. This yep. is um, the co host. Hey, I I really think that um, in time, over the next two years before the midterms, as I, I said to a prior speaker today, prior guest, the people who voted for Biden, um, they're going to wake up after they see how these um, 
the failed policies of the left are affecting them in a negative yeah. way. Yeah. And I think that's going to be our salvation, really. I mean, we already, the Republicans already have 75 to 80 million people who already see how corrupt the swamp is. And I think yes. somebody on the chat and the chat room said it is now the sewer. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> they're already mad and steaming. So I think yeah. we're going to add some more people to the mix and we'll be able to at least regain um, one of the, um, you know, either the House or the Senate or both in the midterms coming up. And then we can work from there, you know, because yeah. we will be able to block a lot of things if we yeah. can regain control a super well not a super majority but just a, a majority what are your thoughts yes, on that yes sir i think you make some excellent points here i'm not a political analyst i'm an historian but um i i do think the way the left uh, will overplay its hand and try to ram its its policies down the throats of ordinary people and of course the policies are, will fail as they always do and they lead to human misery as, they, as take california as a great example i happen to hear a I, I caught a little of the, of the Christian Amanpour show on PBS, which I never watched, but I saw a few minutes of it. And the guest host was asking uh, one, of the, one of the guests, uh, well, you know, California, they've got, it's a progressive state through and through at all levels. And, and, it, and the progressive police are, are like failing. How do you explain that? I couldn't believe I heard this coming from a PBS person that they were acknowledging the progressive failure in California. And, of course, the, the guest made some mealy-mouthed excuse that it was really a, a conservative failure, not a progressive failure. So it was just unusual intellectual nonsense. But the point is, you're going to see the kind of failure of liberal policies as they play out, as we've, as we've been seeing them play out in various cities, and now, of course, in states like California. And I think people are going to vote with their feet uh, and vote with their hands at the ballot box. Uh, we can be hopeful about that. I agree with you. Well, I think there already is a voter remorse, because the moment he did the Keystone Pipeline and those 10,000 right. pinks went out, I watched the social media yesterday where people were screaming yeah. at each other, look what you did to me. You voted for this man. Mm-hmm. I warned you. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, right. on the week of the pro-life rally, the very week of the pro-life rally, which is this week, uh, Biden signs the order forcing Americans to fund Planned Parenthood, and now yeah. he's talking about offering abortions to illegal aliens. I yeah. if, if anything... If anything should wake people up, it could yeah. be the massive job losses because Trump got the yeah. unemployment men in, to equal that of women at 3.5% yeah. for yeah. COVID. And I turned around to, God bless my 89-year-old, she's going to be 89, an Italian Roman Catholic mama. And I said, Mom, <laughs> you're going to watch the unemployment rate. is going to skyrocket. It's going to go above 9 I'm saying it's going to be above 10%. Mm. And gas mm. is going to jump up. $3. And sure mm. enough, my little gas station is now over $2 when it was down to $1.69 just a few months back. Yes, yes, yes. But you heard his announcement, uh, President Biden's announcement the other day. He's, he wants, uh, we're going all to electric cars and we're going to end uh, fossil fuels by what, what was it, 20, is it 2050? Is that the goal? Uh, you know, wh- where this, uh, this imaginary utopian universe uh, of President Biden and the vice president, where it's taking us, we're going to see. I think conservatives, uh, certainly at the Heritage Foundation and, and other conservatives, our allies, will be fighting this tooth and nail. I think you're right. I think the ordinary, the average ordinary American, and more and more people see themselves in the, in the, in the political center, right? Uh, they don't like either party. 
those folks in the center, they are really up for grabs. And as I think the progressive radical left, which has taken hold of the Democratic Party, as it works its mischief in the world, in, in city after city, state after state, I do think there's going to be a pushback. I, I do think there's going to be pushback. So we'll have to see. Well, uh, we know that Trump recently just, I think it was yesterday, made the announcement um, that he will be working with the Republican Party on getting more Republicans elected. So he's not going to have people rally behind him for a third party, which I think is a good thing. Because every time we see a situation like this where the elections flip really badly, like the Ross Perot movement, uh, the Ron Paul movement, the third parties don't work. If anything, they strip power from us, from regaining power. So I I think that was a smart move on his behalf. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a political analyst, as, as I say, Annie, but uh, the two-party system really does serve us pretty well in that it really should force both parties to think about how can they accommodate and win over people with, with differences of opinion on policy issues, but figure out what the non-negotiables are. Because I think the Republican Party still is a pretty big tent compared to what the Democratic Party is a shrinking and shrieking tent, a, a radicalism, and there's no room for dissent. Name me a single Democrat who's pro-life in any position of, of influence at all, the Democratic Party, they're, they're in hiding. They're literally in hiding. But there are, there are a number of pro-choice people in the Republican Party. And, it's, and in other issues, gender issues, there's also a broadness within that party. So I see a, a, a greater generosity of spirit, frankly, uh, just thinking about it historically right now uh, among the Republicans than I do the Democrats. And I think this is an important point worth making. The conservative movement I mean, short of a religious revival in this country, some kind of religious renewal, Christian revival, short of that, I'm becoming more and more convinced that the the real key to to political renewal is going to be the conservative movement, Uh, working uh, a a constructive influence in the Republican Party, trying to have influence among uh, independents and moderates, whatever influence you can have in the Democratic Party. I don't know. (laughs) Lord help us. But I think the conservative movement, because it's so committed to the Constitution, that's the point. The, the principles of the Declaration of the Constitution, that's the conservative movement. And if we can't renew this country by returning to first principles, well, then the last person out the door, turn off the lights because we're done. We're done. Right? <laughs> well, we have to have you back more often because uh, I got to tell you, um, I, I, there's, my DNA is just pure conservatism. I don't think I've ever held a liberal bone in my body uh, so much mm. so that – when I went to the library looking for something to read when I was in high school, I meandered yeah. through there and I picked up C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Um, I have my bookshelf, uh, Plato's Republic, which I have read cover to cover. Uh, yes. So, you know, mm. I, I, these are all the things that, that help us coerce our Christian and conservative ideals. And these are the yeah. things that we have talk about so people understand where we're coming from and why we're coming from going yes. all the way back to the codifying of, Brit- of yes. British common law, which now the British yes. don't even pay attention to anymore, uh, <laughs> to Magna Carta, which I yes. took to a Tea Party framed, uh, and how we ended up coming up with the ideas that were framed in first the Declaration of Independence and then exactly the right. Constitution. So exactly. if we know where we came from then we can help people understand where we're going and why something like the 1619 project, the push of socialism is so wrong for America. Yes. I I couldn't, no, I couldn't say it better. I mean, the, uh, the classical Christian tradition, the Western inheritance, the Western canon, um, this is what conservatives 
want to preserve. There are some things worth preserving. There are some things that just need to be shed from our past. No question about it. Shed it. If it's, if it's immoral, if it's, de- if it's degrading of the human person, yeah, get rid of it. <laughs> but that's not the whole story of the West, is it? There's an incredible no. progress that has been made in affirming human rights and human equality. Uh, I mean, we've got we to triumph those achievements. We have, we have to know what they were and how, fo- how hard fought those achievements were. Otherwise, we can't defend them. Well, Joseph Lacanti, people can find you at heritage.org. Read your articles yes. over on, um, uh, what the heck was that, <laughs> National Review, Braveheart, <laughs> and That's many other places. So, you know, uh, tell Tom, get me on that broad show again. <laughs> We'd love to have you back. Terrific. Thanks for having me. It's always good being with you. God bless her. All right. Check it out Thank at Heritage. Take care. Thank and you, we're down to our last uh, three minutes on the show. Um, I have no idea who I got for next week. I'll let you know. But Craig Huey was supposed to have been booked on the show, Curtis. Uh, for whatever mm-hmm. reason, Agent never confirmed it, so I moved on. So I'll have to find out what went wrong on that one. But I'll leave everyone with Gary Pecorella, his wonderful song, Save America. So until then, I say good night and God bless. And remember, this is the Pro Rally Life Week. Check out their uh, website because they also have a virtual rally going on. Take All care. Right. Until then. Yeah.